Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, Dark Knight of the Podcast fans, friends, followers, and everyone else in between. Last week we were deprived of a certain presence. We experienced what I like to call a drought. A drought that left us completely without the one velvet tongue, Troy Escamilla. Um, To go an episode without Troy is something that I have never been forced to weather before in my life, and I I have to say it was truly horrifying. Troy really is the rock here at Dark Knight of the Podcast. Um, I like to think I bring a little pizzazz to the mix, but goddamn, Troy, I'm I'm never going to say that um, (laughs) you and I do equal amounts of work on this podcast. Running this nonsense (laughs) is stressful as all fuck, and I got to tip my hat to you and say, God, even for one episode, you were missed. I'm back. She's back. Welcome home. Welcome back where you belong. Oh, I missed out on a great guest. I When I was editing the episode, I was so disappointed that I could not have joined the fray and talk uh, such in depth about Deep Red. You know, Roger, you know my love for Argento and, um, you know, he influenced heavily Argento, Suspiria, the Jalos influenced teacher shortage, which you failed to bring up in the episode and you starred in that film. Uh, I was kind of disappointed with that, but you know, hey. Oh my God, I completely did. I just listen, I'm going to say it right now. I got so swept away in Colin's like, overall knowledge of the craft i don't know color me intimidated color me red but i you know i even noticed that because i was like god damn it like this is such a fucking prime topic to talk about so looking back and starting this episode looking back on last week fuckers if you haven't gone and watched (laughs) teacher shortage now's our time we're pitching it if you if we've never talked about teacher shortage on here before troy directed it i'm in it I don't know more what more you want from us. And it's very giallo, which obviously with that last episode, I mean, yeah, perfect, perfect connection between the two. But no, but seriously, you, you did a great job, Roger. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the episode. I think the the listeners are going to enjoy it. Although, you know, I, I joked around with you, watch it become our most listened to episode simply because I'm not. Right, <laughs> I you kick know. you out. <laughs> That would be my luck that it would like all of a sudden we'd have like thousands of listens because fuck Troy, he's not in. Yes, we're going to no. listen to it now. But no, you guys did great, but I'm glad to be back. And, you know, I have I have that task ahead of me in the next few weeks as well. Taking over reins while you are off shooting meat. Oh. With some actual meat, apparently, based on your social media posts. <laughs> Listen, I don't know what the fuck is going on in my life. I feel like it's a constant aneurysm, and I feel like everything that's happening right now, it's like the last thing I see before my brain shuts off, because it's it's so much ongoing just stress and development and evolution in the project, but it's also like, you get this, Troy, very creatively stimulating. Like, when things are actually starting to gel, and like certain things are suddenly seeming attainable. Not everything's going to go exactly perfect. It never does. But like starting to see some of these things fall into place, 
there's like an element of a sigh of relief and I can step back and look at the whole picture. But yeah, I mean, taking these few weeks off here coming up in June, it's upsetting. Like, I know you're feeling it right now, but like not being around for an episode, knowing that someone else dare step in and try to reclaim my throne. Mm, I mean, we'll see. Tell me, do you have some good guests coming on? Or is that a surprise? I do. I no, okay. it's not. A, I'm not going to tell any. I'm not going to reveal okay. who it is yet. But no, I got some good ones lined up, and we got some great films yes. to discuss. And yeah, um, you know, nobody's going to take over the reins for you, Roger. But uh, we have to chug on because we cannot go with we cannot go a whole month without releasing episodes for our listeners because that's just not a good thing to do. So hopefully they will bear with us, get a kick out of the episodes because, like I said, I have some familiar names lined up that I think listeners of this podcast particularly are going to recognize. So so just stay tuned. It's going to be great. We're going to make it through, and you know it's it's not like Rogers doing this for a frivolous reason. He has a a huge production underway that if you guys have seen any of the promo promo material that he's posted for the film, the Indiegogo campaign pitch video and everything involved with this film has looked phenomenal. And I've, I've told many people that it is among the best looking promo material I have seen from indie indie film um, that has been attempting a crowdfunding. Oh my God, the flattery. My, thank you so much. Well, and listen, I'll tell you listeners right now that um, first of all, if any of them do try to fucking take my place, call me Tanya Harding. I'll break a kneecap over it. So just be warned. That's my throne. And now coming back to me, let me tell you, when you give a compliment, I know it's it's selective. Troy is not one to compliment unless he really means it. And if anything, I know that if you had some feedback from me that you thought I could work on, I know you'd be very honest with me. That's like where our friendship's at. I really appreciate that. So knowing that you're impressed by any aspect of, of what I'm doing with Mead is really, really flattering. So thank you for that. But I definitely wouldn't be like anywhere, even and this thing would not be moving or shaken if it wasn't for like my core team that I've been working alongside. And like, you know, when you talk about projects and you promote them, you kind of hit like all like the key beats and you describe it uh, as simply as possible. But I've not really gotten to take enough time, at least on here to acknowledge that I've got like a really amazing team who I'm working with, who like, they are the reason this is where it is. One person alone cannot make a project happen. There's no fucking way. Even two people, God, that's exhausting. I'm lucky that there's a trio of us, um, myself, Michael Coons, and today's guest is is the other part of the trifecta um and it's none other than my my co-writer my fellow producer my assistant director every i mean you name a title he's got it with the movie it's motherfucking zach shield walker zach Woo! welcome to dark night of the fucking podcast thank you thank you for having me thank you for coming yeah welcome we're excited to have you Absolutely, yeah. I'm I'm excited to be here. Well, and this has been a long time fucking coming. Like, let's be real. Like, Zach and I and Mick have been working on Meet progressively now for like we're close. Where are we at? Two years just together working out as on this as a group. I would say we're coming close to the two year mark. And like creating something like that with people for that period of time, like you really get to know people. I mean, I can tell you right now, I'm sure Zach can list some horrible quirks <laughs> me and me as a human being, um, but also like the good things as well. And like, Zach, honestly, like I've had such a great experience working alongside you and getting to know you through this. So now getting to bring you into like our world and get to really talk shop about what we love, which is horror cinema, 
Like, Zach, I know this is what makes you tick as well. Like, you know the most obscure of titles. You know, Zach. And I, I, I think your knowledge of the material is just super impressive. Like, how long have you been delving into the genre? And really, like, what sparked this journey for you? I'm curious to kind of know, like, what makes Zach's love for horror tick? Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, I've been a horror fan since I was a kid. It was always one of those things where I kind of grew up in one of those households where my folks were like, you can't watch that. Or you go to the video store and you'd see this amazing uh, VHS box art. And, you know, I'd want to pick up, you know, Sleepaway Camp or, you know, Friday the 13th, things like that. No, put it back, you know. And it was like the horror section was always right next to that back room where they kept all the porn. Um, so the farther you could go into the store, the more of an adult you felt like you were. So yeah, my, my love of horror is always kind of trying to play catch up and things like that. But, um, I think if I remember correctly, my very first horror movie I ever saw was Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed. And that was on the, uh, Lanigan, uh, channel 43 movie show he used to do. If, uh, anybody in the Cleveland area remembers that from way back in the day, it was like a precursor to, uh. Uh, Gulardi, you know, like Gulardi mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Like, uh, like I grew up on, you know, Rhonda Shear up all night on Friday nights, Gilbert Godfrey on Saturday, Commander USA, uh, Spanguli, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs. Um, I, he was like one of the first books of film criticism I ever read. Um, and then it was just kind of you learn about the genre and then you realize that horror has the most subgenres as well. Like, kind, you know, there's comedy romantic comedy you know action comedy kind of thing but like with horror there's just so much i mean there's there's vampires and zombies and you know you can dive into the universal monsters or you could go into you know k horror and international stuff or you know folk horror and you know you know and then you just splinter off into the weird stuff that a lot of people don't even know exists you know everything from shot on video to extreme cinema to you know, big budget, low budget, and anything in between. I'm curious, and this is, I mean, I know this is going to be fucking tough, but like, is there one specific subgenre that really pops to you? Like a personal favorite extreme horror subgenre? The more obscure, the better. I'm all for it. Uh, I, I love uh, killer bug movies. I don't know what it is about a killer bug movie. It's usually you're going to find, you know, some rubber monster kind of thing. I'm, I just have such a sweet spot for rubber monster suits. Um, and you know, usually killer bug movies are just, they're just meant to be gross. They're meant to be icky. And most of the time they're just completely absurd. Uh, I, I don't think there's ever been a killer bug movie where I'm like terrified. There's nothing that's ever elicited that level of fear of, you know, say you're watching Blair Witch or the exorcist and you know, this could happen kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm just kind of one of those people that, you know, put on a horror movie to relax kind of thing. And that, that, that might say a lot about me. Uh, yeah, I can fucking absolutely relate, though. And I, I know Troy can as well. Like, we find such solace in horror. And I think we all share that for sure. Wouldn't you agree, Troy? Oh, yeah. We all have our, our comfort movies. And, and I would say 99.9% of my comfort movies are horror films. Um, now, horror is, like, legitimately... All I talk about, it's 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 the genre I know the most. And I have to always tell people, you know what? No, I, I know other genres. It's not like I refuse to to watch a comedy or I refuse to watch a drama. It's just like my, my whole life has been so heavily invested in the horror genre. 
And so it's just, I guess it's, yeah, it's what I'm comfortable with. And, and luckily, you know, Zach, I, we talked about this on previous episodes where I have like kind of the same experience in the video store and the VHS box art was really what captured my attention as a, as a kid. The only difference is my parents were okay with, with me renting those types of films. I mean, I was, I was watching Sleepaway Camp Friday the 13th when I was, you know, eight, nine years old. And that really, again, helped ignite my, my love and passion for the horror, because once you, once you, once you're able to pick up one of those awesome VHS box art looking films and your parents let you rent it, guess what? Every time you're in that damn video store, that's exactly where you're going. Because let's, let's be honest, the most eye catching box art has always been horror, particularly like the eighties, late seventies slasher stuff that that's out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, so slasher. Oh yeah. Let's say that's my, I, I adore that's, that's my genre right there. The slasher genre. And you know, you, yours is killer bugs and what a, I mean, look at, look at what film we're discussing today. Wow. Coincidental fitting. <laughs> I mean, he did pick it. So it makes sense if this is his favorite genre. Um, but you know, what? recently Troy, we've talked, we've touched on a few films that have kind of almost slightly dipped their toe in this subgenre. So I think it's like the right time to go killer bug for us. You know what? Yeah, Roger, when I watched this film, I had strong, strong um, deja vu of another film we, we we reviewed. Oh, now it's been several episodes ago, even though it doesn't really feel that way. And I, I will just, I will mention what film it is because I was like, Oh my God, this is so this film we just talked about, which I'll mention when we start the review. Cause I don't want to spoil it right away. Oh no, it's it's a key talking point. I agree completely. I, I think you and I are going to be on the same page with that. It's one that it's one that we reviewed. Oh, maybe a year ago. I had never seen it. It was your pick. Uh, and this film, I mean, beat by beat, almost feels very similar. Yeah, yeah. And but I, you know, I find that intriguing, and I think it's almost a um, a charming aspect of it. I think we're falling into a pattern. We like. <laughs> there's some key things here that I take away from this movie that I realize I, as a film viewer, um, am a fan of. But, but, you know, circling back around, just because, Zach, there's a, there's a lot more things I really want to touch on here with you um, before we kind of launch into this review, because this title, I think it really perfectly... You can touch all over it. I mean, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, first time I met Zach, I'm going to tell you, we're going to just let it all on the floor. First time I met Zach, I was pursuing finding people who would be fitting for me and just working on me, because, you know, I, I can't do it alone, Troy, you understand. And so... I I met a film mixer and I just I saw Zach I was like I was like that guy's hot but if he's queer like understanding of queer material that'll be awesome I did not at all know that Zach was just a very like progressive minded individual like Zach I think one of the coolest things about you and one of the biggest things I think our fans need to take away from this episode is like you align yourself with so many causes that are just i think strong and important and relevant to our community regardless of like how you identify or who you are like you know you zach you're super outspoken for the trans community i think that's a huge pro just in a human being as general like i really appreciate that about you and i think our our listeners you know we have a huge queer listenership i think one thing to get you to just to start looking into some of zach's work is just know like you are an ally through and through in every sense of the word and like what you bring to me is a genuine like desire to show queer culture in its purest form and most authentic form. Like, I really appreciate that you push for that. Like you say, go gayer. You're like, go gayer. I, we want to see it. Go gayer. And like, you've been a huge 
uh, proponent for that because I don't think this film would have been as anywhere near as just fucking fun and wild and gay as it is turning out to be if it wasn't for you being a driving force with that. So thank you for that. Like, I got to give you credit where credit's due. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, I think uh, a big thing, you know, with with allyship and, and you know, talking about the community and things that, at large is, is that everybody talks about opportunities and things like that. And that's that's all well and good, but there's very few that are providing opportunities, making opportunities, creating opportunities. And that's one thing that really attracted me to meet was to be able to write, you know, LGBT characters and to hire LGBT actors to portray those characters. Um, you know, and Cleveland has a really progressive scene. It's, uh, it, it can be a bit not disfranchised or disjointed, but scattered, I guess sometimes it's, it doesn't necessarily get as much coverage, I think as it deserves, but there's a lot of really fun people out there doing amazing things. If you're in the Cleveland area, I used to uh, sponsor black mass, which is a, uh, really rad drag, uh, and burlesque show. It's always free Kings, Queens, and everyone in between. Yeah, I used to uh, volunteer at the LGBT uh, center in in Cleveland as well. Up until uh, COVID, kind of took that opportunity away. Um, and they have a lot of really amazing resources, really cool people there. And you know, it's about as much as you want to get involved, and what you're willing to put into your community is what you're willing to get out of it. It's I kind of equate it to that Jack Nicholson quote out of uh, The Departed. You know, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Yeah, man. And just your knowledge of film is something I really want to touch on too. Like I, you know, when it comes to like the obscure indie titles, like, you know, there's a lot of indie filmmakers out there who make indie films, but like how many of us sit down and watch them? Like, I'm going to call myself guilty. I support people, but I rarely make time in my, in my day to day to sit down and watch people's work. And like, how can one expect to be supported if you're not, you know, being supportive of others. And and so I, I really like I've set a goal for myself just to be more open to just making time for that. Cause I see you, you are constantly consuming independent cinema, supporting independent cinema, raising up other filmmakers. I'm curious, like, you know, on an indie level, who do you have your eye on right now? Who are some filmmakers that you think are bringing something really cool to the table? Cause I think this would be something that a lot of our listeners might want to dip into as well. Oh, I mean, you know, from Ohio level, there's Victor Bonacore. He just had his movie Thrust come out, and that uh, was released on Blu-ray uh, from one of the partnership labels from Vinegar Syndrome through uh, Culture Shock releasing. And that is just a wild fucking movie. It's uh, it's uh, kind of post-apocalyptic. Uh, women rule the world. Men are kind of their slaves. There's one uh, murderous guy that gets out uh, from... Uh, mental asylum kind of care and escapes and starts a bloody rampage kind of thing. And they have to figure out a way to take him down. And uh, it's got Linnea Quigley in it, an amazing soundtrack, a lot of really talented local, local actors as well. Uh, I have a super small bit part with uh, Misty Monday. I think you might see some of my dong in it too. Right. All right. All right. But like, you know, there's there's also other, other people operating at like indie levels that like I always visit their stuff like um, Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. Like they just had uh, Jeremy Gardner had an amazing year. Uh, you know, he was just in Christmas Bloody Christmas and The Leech, which are two amazing Christmas movies that just came out. I think that out of the top three 
it would be Christmas, Bloody Christmas, uh, The Leech, and then Yule Log. I don't know if you guys saw that one. The guy that did uh, Too Many Cooks, he did a movie for uh, Adult Swim. If you get a chance, definitely check that out. And I'm not a gatekeeper at all. If anybody ever wants to reach out for recommendations, like uh, Teacher Shortage, amazing movie, really fun. You can watch that on Mutant Sorority, which if you have a Roku, it's just a free channel you can add. I even know, Troy, did you know this? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> I did not know. I know it was on Tubi. I didn't know. What is, what's it called, Zach? Meat and Tomatoes? Uh, there's a channel called uh, Mutant Sorority. Mutant sorority, I was way off. Uh, okay, yeah. no, I've never heard of that. No, mutant sorority. Okay. Yeah, no, there's um, there's other cool channels. Like I've been trying to find stuff. Like uh, Kino Cult is a really great free channel as well. Midnight Pulp, uh, it's kind of a, like somewhat subscription based. Um, there's a new one I found called Raygun, like a like a space raygun, but they have a thing where you can like tip the filmmakers because you can upload your independent movie as well. So I've only recently discovered that and started messing around with that. But yeah, there's so much content out there for on the indie level. It's it, it feels like it needs curation. You know, it, it, I miss those VHS days of box art because you'd be like, what is this? It's not the same as when you're doom scrolling through Netflix or Shutter or, or whatever streaming service you have. I mean, I'm always fucking open to new material because I, I think that, you know, sh- thank God for Shutter, but like. It, in a long weekend, you can go through everything on Shutter. You know, like, I mean, honestly, like, if I wanted to sit bunker down, I could watch all of it. Um, and so anywhere where I can access new material, I'm, I am all for it. I appreciate you kind of bringing that, you know, to the table for all of us to acknowledge. Because I don't think a lot of us think to even touch, tap into Roku. But I fucking have one. Like, why am I not utilizing it? Oh, yeah. There's uh, Screenbox is pretty dope. I mean, that's bloody disgusting. They're they're still kind of building that up, but they're starting to get some really fun titles. Like they just had Terrifier two, and uh, they're they're getting a bunch more. You know, it's it's kind of what you're willing to get out there and watch. Like Tubi, uh, Tubi has a lot of really rad stuff, but their search engine sucks. So you what the thing you do? This is what I recommend to people: is whatever movie you like. Uh, go into like rate it or whatever, but then scroll down to whatever is recommended because a lot of those movies aren't in the list. So if you're looking for like horror movies, they'll cap you at like 200 or whatever. But uh, the more you rate stuff, the more they'll give you like the weird subgenres. Like uh, what is, there was one I just watched, Vampire Bikini Beach, something like that. It was awful. Uh, I, I was just kind of on a, like a sleaze kick. Like uh, there's Vice Squad and then there's, Hollywood Vice Squad, not the Hollywood Vice Squad's the one with uh, Carrie Fisher. A, a classic title for Carrie Fisher. Recently, we just, by the way, didn't we just celebrate? We have the the the, the fourth came up. She got that fucking star. Thank God, I love Carrie Fisher so much. Uh, she is truly missed. Um, Zach, I want to kind of give a moment to you of if you're going to name a few of your key credits that you would say define your career because you got so fucking many. You know, throw a few things out to your to the listeners right now that you could say maybe kind of define your, your proudest moments. Uh, I, I want them to know where to start looking for you. I want them to know to find some material that's not meat. Rattle a couple of those off for us real fast. Oh, geez. It's, it's weird because my career has been, uh, I moved to New York and I was there for about 10 years working on film and TV there uh, before I moved uh, back to Cleveland to, uh, you know, kind of be with family and, and things like that. And then kind of started my own, productions here uh when i was in new york i worked on you know a lot of network tv uh law and order criminal intent rescue me fringe 
that was that was a lot of really fun stuff. You know, bigger studio movies like Salt, The Taking of Pelham 123. Everybody likes the the accolades. Uh, I worked on Starting Out in the Evening and Sangre de Mi Sangre, which both of those went to Sundance the same year, and then Sangre won the the Grand Jury Prize. Um, and that those were I was both uh, an assistant director on both of those. Uh, which was really cool, but like I couldn't pay my landlord in in scene points or anything like that. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I worked on a lot of random stuff, uh, music videos, industrials, commercials. I think probably the stuff that I'm proudest of is the stuff that I've I've been able to helm myself. Uh, I co-directed a, a, a thriller called Power Bomb, which um, was supposed to come out in theaters and all that. Hit. Amazon and iTunes and all that. You can still stream it if you want. But it came out the same week that uh, all the news of the government shutdown from COVID hit. So it just got completely buried. That's a really fun wrestling drama thriller with uh, Matt Cross from Lucha Underground, uh, Britt Baker uh, from AEW, her boyfriend Adam Cole from WWE. Uh, that was really cool. And then was part of Death December, which was uh, this Christmas horror anthology that had 26 entries from around the world. And then uh, uh, me and my other co-director at the time, we were, I believe, the one of eight teams from America, and we were the only ones that weren't in L.A. But that was cool. That got, you know, I got to go to Germany for the crew and cast screening of that. Uh, it was really a fun project to be a part of. And then, you know, now, now I'm working on me, trying to make this super gay, super bloody LGBT slasher film. If this is the, what I end up becoming known for, I'll feel so fucking satisfied. I think you'll feel satisfied as well because it really is like, I can't emphasize how fucking gay it is. Listeners, um, you know, we've got an Indiegogo right going right now that I really, I got to take a moment, acknowledge it. If there's any point you ever wanted to support me in anything I do, it's fucking this Indiegogo. Even if you just throw a couple dollars at it, I don't care. I mean, my God, it's funding these things is, it's, it's like leeches taking blood. You gotta pay for everything. And then, you know, I'm paying for most of it out of pocket and I'm okay with it because I'm so passionate about what I'm doing. But if you have any interest in some delicious perks, sign jockstraps, sign by porn stars who are going to be in the movie. We got AJ Sloan. He's up for some grabbies. I mean, he's, he's hot. Listen. I'm excited. I'm excited for that. This is, uh, I was saying this before off camera or off mic that, uh, this is yet another porn star I get to work oh God, with. Look at you. I got to have, uh, Marilyn Mason uh, in Spooky Dookie, this uh, feature I, I produced and shot and edited. And then I've worked uh, with Joanne Angel and her husband, Small Hands, on a short film about five, six years back. And then uh, I just got to work with Little Puck and Felicia Fisher for my my one friend's documentary, uh, Jesse Seitz. She's doing a documentary called Monster Girls, which is uh, all about female special effects makeup artists. So yeah, that was that was really really rad. Well, we're putting another notch in the the bedpost for you, and we're making a gay one, so we're keeping it diverse. But yeah, I mean, it's just one more thing to be excited about. So so guys, if you want to support us in any way, keep your eyes on that Indiegogo. We will be sharing it in the group and so forth. But you know, right now, I think we need to shift this focus to this fucking movie because if there's one one film, I guess I could say that I I feel does perfectly encompass who I think you are as a film connoisseur, Zach. Like after seeing this movie, <laughs> this is the best way to describe you. I mean, this movie has so many key things that I think uh, make up your taste in cinema. I mean, it's got crazy puppet puppets. It's got face melting. It's got 
insane gore. It's it's got shoulder pads. It's got everything I could want <laughs> from a film uh, of this of this very specific subgenre. It, it really delivers on a lot of levels, and so I, I got to say, good call on picking something. Uh, obscure that I don't think Troy, you or I would have ever kind of leaned towards uh, because it's definitely different for us. Even though it does feel some uh, somewhat familiar and hit some of the beats of other films we've watched, it is still in its own ways very fresh and different. So I do have to acknowledge that. Yeah, I I love the nest. It's probably uh, out of the killer bug subgenre. Uh, for me, the top three are the nest, ticks, and slugs, and the the order of those constantly kind of rotates because I'll revisit them and then I'll be like, I like this one a little bit more. And then I'm like, oh, but wait, this one. Uh, but yeah, this movie is absolutely ridiculous. I love the cast. I love the director. I love that, uh, you know, just to kind of bring it back to, you know, your previous episodes that the 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 guy that wrote this um I don't know if you looked at his credits. He is the guy that did the screenplay for Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Oh God. Well, first of all, thanks for doing your homework and going oh, back absolutely. and listening. <laughs> we appreciate that. Robert Robert King. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And actually, the director of The Nest wrote the screenplay for The Howling. I mean, amazing. Uh, but yeah, guys, if you haven't figured it out, we are discussing 1987's uh, killer cockroach flick, The Nest, which I will say I have never seen this movie. Nor have I. No, I, but I, I distinctly remember the VHS cover art of that giant cockroach looking like it is raping this poor woman on the front cover. <laughs> You're talking about box cover art. This is like hands down one of my favorite. I think this and if you like weird shot on video SM horror uh zipper face if you've ever seen that one yeah but the nest has amazing cover art this movie is amazing all throughout and uh it, it's so unabashedly <laughs> tongue-in-cheek but serious at the same time oh yeah i uh, i feel like there are yeah definitely everything in this film is played to, at least to, for me at least how it came off to me everything is played very seriously which just adds to like the absurdity of of everything going around there are a few comic relief i think characters in the film but like everything that's happening is played so seriously and it's just like this sometimes like this awkward i don't know like tone that's created because What's happening on screen is so fucking ridiculous, but the, the actors are acting are taking it so damn serious. But yeah, no, I I hadn't seen this, so it was it was it was definitely an experience. So sh should we get into it? I, I say we fucking get into it. I'm ready. I'm chomping at the bits. Okay, so the film The Nest opens up uh, in Northport, which I'm assuming is supposed to be like an island community, possibly off of like what California, because the Beth character apparently comes back from LA, but we'll get to that. But the film opens up with a, a beautiful lighthouse shot. The lighthouse does come into play later on in the film. There's a radio voiceover that's happening over the opening and the camera sort of just floats into the room of Sheriff Jane, uh, Richard Tarbell, who is just like laying lazily in bed when he gets a call from Millie, who is the, I guess the, the police dispatcher. I love this Millie character. We never actually see her. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we do though it's it's specifically like they they purposely don't show her face which i respect about that uh but like she is she is like a consistent character throughout the film and at times she's she's one of the best parts of it she's got so much spunk and personality for being a dis- disembodied voice which i like about millie oh it's she's so sassy i mean it's just kind of like tarbell is like Master Chief getting a little chime in from, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, I, I dig her a lot. She she adds a lot to the film, surprisingly. I can't believe I'm saying that. I also like that this first shot is literally like the camera comes down and immediately you get like a nice button, a nice button denim. And he rolls over and you've got this open shirt with this this like furry chest. And I was like, well, this looks like a gay porn like right off the bat. Just the way this guy's presented. From the jump. Besides just being like a bootleg, like it's the fog during the day is the opening. But it, it is, it's like it plants that seed. This movie is, uh, I, I quantify it as LGBT queer cinema. It's got all the undertones and I'm going to get into it as we get into it. Interesting. She buzzed him to tell him that she's been getting weird calls all night. Uh, apparently at Roger Gordon, he didn't come home last night. And this little tourist girl it has gone missing. And there's there's dogs that have been barking incessantly, and the librarian, this damn librarian, called the police to report <laughs> that uh, book pages from her library books have fallen out. I'm like, why are you calling the police for that? I guess she thinks little kids did it, apparently. But <laughs> she also tells the sheriff that there is a special VIP coming into town for the mayor's birthday. During this phone call, we had to point out that we are seeing like cockroaches crawling all over this room. And in fact, one of them is in his coffee and he, there's several moments where he's getting ready to take a drink from the coffee. She says something that he has to respond to until like the very last, you know, right before they hang up, he does take a swig of the coffee and gets this big fucking cockroach in his mouth and has to spit it out. Oh my God. This movie does successfully plant the fear in me that there are constantly cockroaches in my life. Like I'm always suspecting I'm seeing something moving now. Like I'm so convinced I'm going to lift up a toilet bowl and it's just going to be filled with cockroaches. Like this movie did do that to me. So in that sense, this movie is definitely successful. Um, These opening four or five minutes alone, cockroaches immediately, this city or this island town is just infested with a, a shocking number of cockroaches. <laughs> well, and apparently it was infested with these cockroaches before this experiment even happened because the experiment kind of is a result of the, apparently cockroaches being everywhere. I don't know. Kind of weird. But no, I, I do like the fact that the film sort of, I, I feel like it, it kind of, as it sets out, as the plot progresses and, and shit starts happening and animals are being brutally murdered, the, the film plays it like it's a mystery. Like we don't really know what is attacking these things at first. We hear the buzzing of them. We, there's this ominous buzzing that happens throughout the entire movie, but like, we don't know right away what they are. It doesn't like hit us with that until like, eh, maybe midway through the film that we find out it's cockroaches. Uh, but I do like the fact that it gives you a, a, a very strong, strong clue right away that the cockroaches are going to be the, the menace in the film. I also like the fact, and I think it's a little bit refreshing, that the film doesn't really necessarily start with a a death sequence. You, you look at other films in this, as you say, Zach subgenre of killer bugs. It's usually it opens with a with a death, like somebody being 
killed off unsuspectedly by whatever the threat is. If we think of the film that this heavily reminded me of, and I'll mention it now, uh, when I was watching this film, I could not help but get the film uh, Mutant out of my mind because it, it, very similar. And the, 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 the film Mutant opens with somebody being killed by whatever this mysterious thing is. Uh, I, I like the fact that th- this film doesn't do that. It kind of lets the death scenes come a little bit later so that when they do happen to the specific characters that we've, we, we know who the characters are. We we've spent some time with them. It's not just some random person in the, in the prologue or the opening scenes that we have no idea who they are. We kind of care when these people die. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the, 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 the strength of it is in the beginning, they introduce this full ensemble cast, like that diner scene where, you know, the sheriff uh, Tarbell shows up and, you know, we meet Homer uh, as well. And, you know, you have Church, the cook, where he's reading a flea in her ear. I don't know if you guys caught that. But the story of that is about this woman that, like, fakes her death to, like, catch her cheating spouse kind of thing. Which is really intriguing for later on with uh, all the stuff that Richard deals with with uh, Elizabeth and Lillian. Particularly Elizabeth, yeah. This film... Uh, and th- this film, like, I-, I feel like in general, just like in the sense of alluding to what's to come, th- one thing I've got to kind of tip my hat to the writers in general is even just like some of their choices of wording. Like they constantly use terms like they're like when the tourist season comes, you know, the tourists are going to be swarming this place or they use words like uh, words that really make your mind go to like swarming infestation pest they're like that oh my god you know what's a pest like they use that term a lot so like you keep hearing things that make you think cockroaches like there's <laughs> there's constantly in the dialogue it's worked into the dialogue in in such intricate ways that i think that this the story just does a really good job of building up to something that you are knowing to expect something even before you know exactly what you're supposed to expect from it. Um, There's surprisingly like some well-handled writing between these characters because they all have a really strong bonds and are written to be more than just two dimensional. They touch on some things I just wouldn't necessarily expect from a film of this kind of like lowbrow caliber. Like, like Beth's mother, when you find out that she had killed herself, but that her father had basically told the newspapers that she had like overdose had like a drug overdose. And so he was embarrassed of that. Like that's a pretty deep uh, subject to touch on in a movie about killer cockroaches. So I'm surprised they kind of took the time to develop these characters the way they did. Uh, I was going to say like with, with the dialogue you were talking about, I think that Jake has some of the best dialogue because it's almost these non nonsense, non sequiturs where, you know, he's, uh, shooting at the rat in his junkyard and he says uh death comes slow for those that run and you know it's uh the other thing in the diner in the beginning is like rats there's nothing worse than rats and the movie goes to show you that absolutely there is but the one thing that he has that one line on the beach where he asks uh richard he's like are you gonna marry my daughter and i was like that always every time i've watched it it always hits me because like is Jake crazy? Is he kind of slow or is he just losing his marbles? And this is the onset of dementia. And, you know, my, my dad dealt with that. I've had family that's, that's had to deal with that. And it's like, you get those cognitive moments of where they know they're on their way out kind of thing. And like, I think that really hits and gets overlooked 
But yeah, Jake's one of my favorite characters just because of his dialogue. Yeah, I have that note. I have that exact note. That moment he says that on the beach, it's such a moment of clarity because when he's introduced in the diner, he is very much introduced as like, like, you know, as I'm taking notes, I don't necessarily know the character's name. And I just put like he was the town you know, crazy. I, that's, that's what I used to describe him until I found out his name because he just comes off as being just like that larger than life, uh, losing his marbles. Like you said, character, that's just the town. Like everyone knows, Oh, that's crazy Ralph or crazy Jake. And, but it, but there are moments where he has this very, like, like you said, clear, it's just like a revelation. And he says when he, when he, when he does say that to um, the sheriff on the beach, it's, it's just so calm. It's not even in the same type of vocal inflection that he usually uses, which is very animated. It's just like very matter of fact, are you going to marry my daughter? And it was kind of, it took me by surprise. So, but riddle me this, riddle me this. Do you think, cause it, it, this was like probably the fourth or fifth time I rewatched. Uh, I, I've seen this movie like over 20 times, but like by the third watch rewatch, I started thinking, what if Jake is perfectly cognizant of everything that he knows and does and that he he launched into that thing about, are you going to marry my daughter because the sheriff cut him slack for stealing the boat? Like I, I like I, I have this kind of theory that Jake might be a little more nefarious just because he runs the junkyard. How did those roaches get there on the island? Like, I think that, there's more to this story, I think, but there could be, or I thought maybe he asked him that because he knew that Beth was back in town. Yeah. I, I don't know. Interesting. Very interesting. But yeah, at this diner, uh, we are introduced also to, we have to point her out and I have to say, okay, Roger, as you're praising the writing, I will say like one of the weakest elements of this film for me that really stood out and kind of had me irritated. It was really hard for me to warm up to the sheriff character in this film because I ultimately think he's a fucking asshole. And it's because of this hinted at very lazily handled relationship between him and Lillian. Oh, it's, Ooh, it's my least favorite part. Yes, exactly. Thank you. I was wondering if you were going to, cause I was really pissed. Uh, I'm like, this guy's a fucking pig. He goes into this diner and he, yes! he's obviously, he's like lovey, lovey with Lillian. Like she gives her a kiss in front of everybody. She bought him a present in the mainland. She bought him some cool sunglasses and there you think, oh, they're so cute. They're in love. Uh, no, no, not at all. Because he leaves the fucking diner to go pick up this VIP, uh, who's coming into town and it is none other than. Beth, delicate Beth, who is wearing, <laughs> who is wearing a sensible. Tr- uh, I don't know how comfortable this dress would be to travel in, but she's wearing this pink dress, fucking pearls. Uh, she looks like she just walked off the set of a Cosmo magazine shoot. And right away, he's in the truck with her. He's like, oh, they're they're trying to talk, and she's like, oh, she says something and interrupt him, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. What do you want me to say? And she's like, he says, well, you could say you miss me. I'm like, dude. You were just in the diner with Lily and she gave you a present. And now all of a sudden from this moment on Lillian is a fucking afterthought. Oh, this dude treats Lillian like a piece of fucking trash. I I'm like, how? Listen, Ugh. I got thoughts on Lillian. I got, I got to get him off my chest. You, you mentioned earlier the mutant, you know, you compared it to mutant. I got to say this. Here's, here's my ranking. This film for me falls somewhere dead in the center between mutant, and Piranha 2 The Spawning. <laughs> because all hit very similar beats. You got a cop element. 
you got something affecting an island or, or a remote area you got, that is completely abnormal and like just like difficult to deal with. And then you got a ragtag group of characters trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, and, and this movie, it, just much as it makes me think of the mutant, it also makes me think of Piranha 2 The Spawning. And I don't say that in a horrible way because we gave Piranha 2 The Spawning more love than we anticipated. But this film, as much as it handles the material for several of its characters very well, there are other characters who do fall very much fall victim to just complete like negligence on behalf of the writers. Like Lillian, if they wanted me to support the sheriff and the, the horrible decisions he makes to wrong this woman, write a more unlikable character. I'm sorry. Don't start just showing her showering him with gifts out of nowhere, smiles on her face, tanned skin, bronzed, this bronzed blonde goddess, just serving him coffee and feeding him food and treating him like a king. And this poor woman, you really think this woman's going to play a major factor here. But as soon as sensible Beth with the shag blonde hair comes into play with that bob, it's Lillian is not only is she an afterthought, in the sense of the story, she's an afterthought to the fucking sheriff. Like he doesn't even have like the cojones to go to her and be like, listen, my former love hath returned to the Island and I am so smitten. I simply, I'm sorry. I appreciate the sunglasses. You've been nothing but kind to me. You, you make a great omelet. I'll see you at the coffee shop, but I've got to pursue this. He doesn't even have the respect to go to her. The level of respect for this woman who he's, who he's apparently dating to go to her and just tell her what's going on. He's just shitty about it. And it does make him out to be extremely unlikable. And it makes poor Lillian just the object of my sympathies for the rest of the film. The, the only thing Lillian gets to see is him driving around town with his bra in his front seat. I mean, she's, she gets no... <laughs> <laughs> it's like paraded in front of her. <laughs> this poor woman. God, she must feel horrible about herself. That, but that's the thing is, I was going to say is that he has that. Uh, Lillian has that amazing speech that she gives to Beth, where she says that Richard is uh, the only man in that town worth crossing the street for. Like that whole segue that she does, that soliloquy is it's fucking poetic. It's so good. And that makes me like her even more. So which pisses me off. Yeah, especially because she's attracted to the fucking Aldi version of David Naughton. <laughs> the Aldi version of David. It would have been more poetic, Zach, if the movie ended with goddamn Lillian with a shotgun being the one that took out these fucking that took out these goddamn cockroaches. I'll say that. And Lillian and Beth fly off together. Well, Lillian's journey is sympathetic, and then she also has the single most unsatisfying conclusion to any character story I've ever seen. I'm not even sure I know what happens to her. <laughs> but we let's not jump ahead. I know, let's, I know. Let's stay, let's stay on the okay, so okay. <laughs> you find out that this fucking Beth has been oh, out of town for four years. So that is even more problematic because has the sheriff been fucking Lillian these past four years and all it takes is for Beth to show back up. I'm sorry. I'm not going to get over this with, the, with his, his, his treatment of Lillian. I, I'm not getting over it. So you guys just bear with me here because I'm going to keep bringing it up. But um, yeah, but I do. He, she didn't even know his fucking dad died. She had no, wouldn't you think that if this fucking Beth was so into him, she would at least known his dad died and sent him a card or some flowers or something, whatever. But they do stop at the library where we meet. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is going to be me, Roger. Literally, I'm a librarian. That's my job. I'm a high school library, middle school. This will be me in 20 years sitting on the side of the curb, bitching at anybody that walks by that my library book pages are falling out. Roger, you cannot tell me you did not think of me with the, when you saw Mrs. Pennington there at the library. The kids are taking the glue out of the books, like just bitching about the most, like the single least important thing I can think of. Like this woman, find, she manages to pick a, make a mountain out of a molehill with these goddamn <laughs> library books. And then another thing I like about this broad is she's got a, she's injured. She's in a wheelchair. Her leg's broken. You never know why. Like you just know you come in on it. The woman is restricted to a wheelchair. She's got a leg cast. That's all you get. That in the books that the children are apparently ruining, or so she thinks. So good reason to call the police <laughs> to report this heinous crime. <laughs> he tells her it's just pests, Zach. That's the word. He, it's just pests. Pests do that. Uh, we cut to uh, the second most worthless character in the entire film. Um, <laughs> Sai, <laughs> this character of Sai, who is in the in the mayor's office, we're also introduced at this time to the mayor, Elias Johnson, who happens to be Beth's father. Uh, and this side character is upset that he has not gotten this loan from this iTech corporation that is apparently has agreed to um, develop the island and, and bring it into the 21st century, as it's said later. And he says, and Sai's like, I'm going to have to raise my prices on, I'm just going to have to do it all there is to it and the mayor's like no you are not raising your prices and you will get the money when iTech decides to give it to you and then size like you know what mayor you don't you can't run everything that goes on in this town and yeah and like just like Lillian Roger you really think that the side character is gonna have like some bigger part of the plot like Right away, he's setting up conflict with like the mayor. Like you think, oh, he's going to go against the mayor. There's going to be some conflict between these two characters. No, he's never seen again <laughs> until one minor scene coming up that could have completely been cut. I'm like, I don't. So while some characters are written really well and some relationships are written really well, others are just like you said, kind of it just seems kind of like an afterthought. So I think the mayor initially introduces being really heinous. He seems like he has some really harsh dialogue for Sai that just seems really like overall when you get to know the character of the mayor, it seems a little bit out of place. Like he's gruff, but overall, like though he's made some bad decisions, if anything, he seems to really care about his daughter and is not quite the villain that I think this opening scene is setting up to make him out to be. Do you get what I mean? I do. I do. He 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 does seem very maniacal in this scene. He even calls Sai a greedy little merchant. I won't let greedy little merchants drive away the tourists. So again, it sets up something that you think may happen that just never does. There's no there's no payoff with it. Richard does drop Beth off to her dad's place and um right away, I mean, they're wasting no time. They're planning on seeing each other that night. Apparently, he had no plans with Lillian because he's making plans with this broad. Right? right, right oh, yeah, I have no plans tonight. Whatever. You know, Lillian was waiting at the damn di at that damn diner for him to come and pick her up after work. You know it. You know it. But he makes plans with Beth. Whatever. Um. So she goes in to see her dad, and <laughs> the, <laughs> I like the fact that like this relationship between Beth and her dad is like it's right away painted as being like there's some turbulence to it, right? Because most, you know, daughters would run up to their dad and give him a big old hug. Dad, I haven't seen you for years. You look great. What does she say to him? She looks at him. She's like, dad, you look old. 
And then he comes up and he, he looks like he's really like not invested in the moment at first. He's looking at her like almost with a expression. It looks like he like can't stand her. And then all of a sudden he goes up and he just like embraces her. He's like, you're all I wanted for my birthday. And I was like, that's not the direction I anticipated this going. Um, but yeah, he seems to very much like dote over her and actually is is quite loving towards his daughter. He's just done some shitty things you come to find out about the character. Yeah. I mean, the dad is great. I mean, Robert Lansing, the actor that played him, I mean, that guy... If you've ever seen his IMDb, his credits go back like all the way to the 50s. I mean, he died in mid 90s, I want to say. But like he was in that show Monsters. He did another killer bug movie. Uh, He was in um, Empire of the Ants as well. Is that with Susie and Summers? Uh, That's the one I want to say. Joan Collins. Joan Collins. Yeah. No, he's great in the film. I, I would say the acting pretty much in this film is pretty okay across the board. There's not, there's nobody that's bad. Oh no, the the, the cop is is bad. He doesn't know what movie he's in. But I don't know if this movie would work with like a tough guy cop. You know what I mean? Like if it was, you know, Stallone in this movie, it'd be just completely different. I think you kind of need this Officer Dewey uh, kind of bumbling jag off to lead the lead the way you definitely get like the idea that at the beginning of the movie like richard's life is like crumbling like him laying on that bed cockroaches everywhere just drinking coffee off the fucking floor like it just makes him look to be as though he cannot handle the responsibility of what you find out his father you know recently passing away basically he inherited the job as the sheriff he he took it after his father but he's not necessarily great at it um, but he is likable. Like, it does seem like the people within the town respond well to him. And, and that's what makes the character work. Even through some of these horribly atrocious choices, he still manages to have a likability to him. He just treats <laughs> that poor fucking girlfriend of his so, so horribly that I just can't really like him completely. I, I don't know. I, I like the character for the film. I, I don't mind him. It's so goofy, like, when he finally catches up with Homer and pulls him over, and then they chase each other around his fucking squad car. There's some goofy shenanigans in this film. It's It needs its own laugh track <laughs> at some points, and I think that's the charm of it, because, you know, you get, like, those kind of special effects moments, like the grass buzzing, and you hear the buzz of the roaches, and the grass kind of shaking a little bit, and it's got, a, like, a lot of those... You feel like you're watching Squirm if you've seen that Killer Bug movie. and But it's like it has such a natural progression. It's like a roller coaster. You're like, oh, this is like a kiddie ride. It's the, the cop, you know, with sunglasses. You know, I might as well hear a record scratch, you know, and then see him surfing. You know, like if they would have made him surf in this movie, it would totally would have fit. Yeah, and the, the mayor wastes no time making little quibs to people about how the sheriff only has the job because his dad was the sheriff and passed away. And you can tell that uh, Richard really doesn't take well to these comments. He 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 looks pretty perturbed when, when the mayor says this numerous times throughout the film. But, you know, the sheriff uh, goes to the lighthouse that night to radio to Millie that, to tell her that there are no signs of this Roger character who disappeared. She proceeds to tell him she got five more complaints about this barking dog. And this is the first time you hear what you were just, you just talked about, Zach, this like buzzing noise. It's like this loud buzzing electric static noise. And he kind of walks towards where it's coming from to, to check it out. And Jake pops up 
right beside the like the the stairs that he's going down and startles him. And this is when the sheriff's like, Jake, I told you about taking other people's property. You got to take that boat back. And Jake is really acting like, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, other people's property. I'll take it back tonight. You know, he's just being real goofy. And as he walks away, very matter of factly, he asks the sheriff, are you going to marry my daughter? And the sheriff's response is, I really like her, Jake. Doesn't fucking seem that way, does it? Uh, They didn't need to have this moment. Listen. Uh, you don't need to put salt on the fucking wound. If you're going to have him treat this poor Lillian like a piece of shit, don't also bring her goddamn uh, father who's spiraling into dementia into the story and have him specifically ask the guy, are you going to marry my daughter? Only for him to, him to give him some bullshit answer like that. I mean, like, God damn it. If they couldn't make this guy look any worse in the situation, they just did it. So I, I felt this was unnecessary for poor Lillian. It just shitting all over Lillian. <laughs> So riddle me this. Do you think that the sheriff was telling the dad the truth? I almost feel like at one point they had a different script and then they didn't have Lillian for as much time as they thought. So then they they they, they rewrote it. No, um I you know, I feel like I feel like in that case he's telling he's given a vague answer to avoid giving a 100% response. He he doesn't say yes. He says I really like her. But I think he's avoiding, you know, the actual answer. I think he knows what he fucking wants, and it's that goddamn pixie-haired nymph floating around the island, Beth. You know, he's got all eyes on her. And I guess understandably so, I suppose. I mean, Beth's fine. Like, she's pretty capable. I feel like Beth, in my personal opinion, is like if you took Ellie Sattler from Jurassic Park... And you mated her with Meg from the Blob remake, the one from 1988. You put them together, you would have sensible Beth. She's like the perfect combination of the two of these broads. And she kind of ends up like stepping up the game towards the end of the movie, which I would not have anticipated. I actually thought she was going to be more of the damsel in distress. But thank God she finally grows some cojones at a certain point and seems to take charge. Like I did not expect that Beth was really going to be the one who took the bulls by the horn come the end of the movie. So her journey is kind of interesting for me because first few scenes, she's very soft and very delicate. Well, yeah. And you do get a moment with her after this scene at the, the, the lake with the sheriff um, with Beth looking around her mom's old room. And you get this like tender moment where her dad comes in the room and tells her that he is sorry that he wasn't, he's sorry for not being there to help her when she needed him. And, you know, this is like the only moment in the film where you, you feel like true, genuine, like um, compassion between the two, because she does hug him and she tells him, I know. And he's like, I just don't want to lose you. And you do feel, okay, so maybe there is some, some lingering connection between these two characters, but this is like the only moment that happens. You cut to then her. I don't know if it's the next day. It must be, she's walking through the woods, heading to this like old hangout spot that her and Richard used to hang out to or hang out at when she is like attacked nearly by this German shepherd. Luckily he is chained to a pole so he can't actually get to her and she kind of is startled, but kind of walks past it to get deeper into the woods. And this poor German shepherd, um, we hear some electrical noises, this buzzing noise, and we see like the grass start shaking and something is coming towards this German shepherd and it is freaking out. And it starts to like howl and cry and, and Beth hears it and bless her heart. She runs back to try to help it to see what's going on. And when she gets there, she finds that it's basically been like skinned. And now it's just like this bloody corpse. 
I guess you'd have to put a trigger warning on this film if if you don't like animals seeing like animals be killed. <laughs> it's probably isn't the film for you because this isn't even the worst animal uh, death in the film. But this this dog has liter- literally been skinned and is just like this bloody. This movie rips so hard because it's you know we were talking about earlier about how most horror movies in this subgenre of killer bug movies or even just horror movies in general you need that kill in the first 10 minutes that's what any studio exec will tell you we get fucking almost 15 20 minutes before anything gory happens and the thing they hit you with is this ultra gory fucking dead dog like this is some like John Wick level type shit that we just walked into in the VHS era. Like we didn't have trigger warnings or anything like that. It was just like, bam, here you go, weirdos. Still in? Buckle up. It only gets weirder. Uh, you know, I I I really like this opening sequence for what it is because it is shocking because it is a dog. Like, yes, I get it. I don't want to see a dog die, but I think one of my things that I have a bit of a gripe with is. Like the sound that the roaches make, I'm gonna be honest. It's, it's, it doesn't sell me. It sounds literally like if you take a radiation machine, like that detects, you know, if something's radioactive, and you like put it up against it, and it starts going, like that's the sound the roaches make. You mean a a guy? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that thing. Yeah, and that's the noise the roaches make. But like the level of the audio, like sometimes people hear it, sometimes people don't. Like it seems like sometimes it's almost something that only the audience is supposed to be hearing. I can't really ever fully grasp like how accurate that sound technically is supposed to be in the moment you know in the scene as it's unfolding so the audio takes me out of it a little bit what i do like though are like the shots of the grass moving like i thought that was really creepy i like that for the first few sequences here you don't see the the roaches themselves and it's not because they can't show the roaches like clearly as the movie progresses you see a lot of varying uh, degrees of cockroach through its mutation process because these cockroaches don't just stay cockroaches by the way they start to become things it's very strange but for the first few scenes it's really just implied visuals like you just see the grass moving you hear the audio you see the dog responding the dog becomes panic so i did find the scene rather effective and that payoff like it is a gory reveal of this this dog torso or this dog carcass, you know, this remnants of this dog that's been completely ripped up. Like it's rather gruesome. Um, I kudos to them for going there that hard for the first actual death. It was just kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, during the VHS era, you would not have had like any warning that this was going to be in the film. And I was a little, I was a little taken aback that they killed this German shepherd off. And then had the had the uh, balls to show it, but like I said, it's not even like sort of it's not even the worst I think animal death scene that's shown in the film. So just heads up if you're not into that and you haven't watched this film, just just giving you fair warning. So the sheriff does pick off some like little black, little black like they look like seeds, like droppings. He picks them up off the carcass uh, and puts them in a little baggie. Later, he shows up at the mayor's house, and the mayor is very dismissive of him and. Uh, does ask him though what he thinks he's happened to the dog and asks him if he thinks it was animals and the mayor's response is well yeah i hope so beth comes out to the door and you can tell like this mayor is not very happy with the relationship between beth and richard and i'm wondering if it's 
because he just technically he doesn't like Richard or he knows that Richard is involved with Lily. And I don't know, but there's some animosity between these two. Obviously, it probably stems from them working in such a close capacity, being mayor and sheriff. But he is not at all pleased that his daughter is into this sheriff dude. But they do go out for fresh air and we find out that she has been MIA because she's been in L.A. as a reporter. And he asks her, oh, well, why are you here? Did you quit? And she said, well, no, it's kind of open-ended. And then he is like, starts like whining to her. He's like, I don't even know why you left me. And she reveals that she left town because she felt like she was always treated like a 17-year-old and that she had to get away from her father. Yeah. I mean, they kind of set it up to be this Romeo and Juliet thing of like that the dad could have kept them apart kind of thing. I like to see it as the angle... Uh, I, I think the dad uh, has a crush on the sheriff. Where did you, from what gave you that impression? Uh, so from from the opening, if you go back and watch this movie again, I challenge you, think of the mayor's characters, Elias, uh, his character as a gay character and just their interactions of that his wife killed herself because she was a beard. <laughs> And if you you can spin it out in so many different ways, like that face to face meeting that he has with Sai, like he's like an inch away. He almost put his tongue in his nose. He was that close to him. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's a level of attraction between the the mayor and the sheriff. Listen, we're always searching for gay undertones here at Dark Knight of the Podcast, but I'm going to tell you right now, Zach, I did not ever once pick up on anything. Now that you're saying it, I'll go back and look for it. But I mean, I think we're reaching. <laughs> I felt like I feel like the sheriff was all into what's her name when she shows up. That Meg Foster looking doctor. Oh, that's that is the bootleg Julia from Hellraiser. And that stone cold lesbian oh. with the shoulder pads. I thought yes. I thought it looked like I thought it was Meg Foster. It's like a Meg Foster hybrid. But like when she first gets off the plane, he says something to her like that's real like inappropriate. I can't remember what it is. And he's wearing the Mrs. Voorhees sweater in their interaction. <laughs> what a specific note. But you know, true. He does have a very Pamela Voorhees vibe about him as the movie progresses. And when you find out one of the twists here. I mean, I guess maybe it is a homage. <laughs> it could be. He could be a repressed homosexual. I mean, I guess I guess it could make sense for, for some of his decisions throughout the film. Because, I mean, that's the other thing. Is like the director did, uh, he did a movie back in the day, uh, She's My Man, which is a super weird uh, POC cross-dressing movie. So, like, he kind of has played with the past of, other stories that dip into weird territories. I mean, he's all over the place. He's done episodes of children's television. I want, I think he did power Rangers and Beetleborgs as well. Something like that. I love Beetleborgs. <laughs> uh, but the next scene is Jake, poor old Jake at his junkyard shooting rats. Uh, he's just shooting at them, giving them one liners. Another trigger warning for the rat. Yeah. The rat carcass that gets thrown out and it's like this poor rat has been chewed in half and you just see like the front half of it trying to crawl around without its the rest of its body. But then we do hear the um, the buzzing noise and Jake is immediately concerned that something's there and they start we see something just start chasing him through its POV and he he runs like I feel like 
he could have hidden a better spot. <laughs> what he does is he gets in his bed and just pulls the covers over him to try to hide from whatever's coming after him. I guess a very childlike thing to do, which fits the character, I guess. But he is immediately attacked and bloodied, including, and I want to know how within seconds his arm is dismembered and thrown on the floor. Well, let's let's be clear here. Let's think about it. You don't see the the, the roaches approaching him. You just see his reaction and you hear the noise. And this is becoming a trend here for a bit. But what is he seeing that's really like, is he just seeing like an army of cock, like thousands of cockroaches, like mounting up on each other, on top of each other? Or is he seeing one of these weird, they start mutating. And like, is he seeing like a mutant cockroach? Because his reaction here is pretty big. If I just saw that many cockroaches, I would be like, oh my god, oh my god, this is disgusting. I wouldn't run and hide from them. I would be like, I'm setting fire to all of this. Like, this is disgusting. So his response here, when you think about what he's actually seeing... It's big. It doesn't completely make sense. It's a big response. And then, yeah, he goes and he gets in the bed. They start eating him. You see blood rolling down his, his onesie torso. You know, he's wearing a pair of, like, a onesies. And then you just see that goddamn arm get chopped off. But that's his long, long John underwear. This is this is the woman in negligee lingerie type stuff, except his version. <laughs> I don't get lo- I don't get negligee. I I get senile old man with a with, with, like waddling around, giving a very big performance. By the way, like he's really chewing on the scenery, and then soon he's the scenery getting chewed on because he's goddamn cockroaches. They start spewing blood all over he's screaming please please don't don't eat me and then like you see his arm come off and you get one shot where the arm is like clearly his arm and then it comes to another shot of what is like it's like a an arm made out of like a jello mold getting dragged across the ground where the fingers like limply (laughs) they're very they're soft and malleable (laughs) this sequence with the hand is one of my favorites like it's on par with uh uh that fucking uh, Thanksgiving slasher film, Blood Rage. Oh yeah, Blood Rage is great. Oh, we love Blood with, Rage. like with the hand, uh, the cut off hand holding the can of old style. Like that's on par with this movie and the effects for that sequence. But Jake, yeah, Jake's reaction is pretty big, and yeah, these cockroaches are pretty powerful to chew off his arm within seconds. So it makes it a little ridiculous when we do find out that it is cockroaches because like how are these cockroaches dismembering people so quickly but they are you know you just got to go with it uh, well i will say i will say at this point in the movie at this point in the movie we've seen a variety of cockroaches we've seen the big like hissing cockroaches we've seen the normal like house cockroaches and then there's like pretty sure they have like scarab beetles in the mix as well there's like not one breed you think that they would have made something there's a variety i I read somewhere in the trivia that they just like literally for this film they started like picking cockroaches off the rounding up cockroaches from like alleys and stuff to put them in this film which i believe because it's like just a variety of all these cockroaches the next day it's light out richard runs out of his place to 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 ask homer if if homer can come spray his his apartment and homer's like no i gotta go spray the cabins but he gives him a tube of pesticide it's like here take this call me in the morning i'm gonna go spray the cabins uh this fucker the sheriff has the audacity (laughs) to show up to lillian's cafe that day for his morning coffee. And you can tell she is having none of this. She is cold. She's in a bitchy mood. She's bitchy to the customers. She doesn't say a fucking word to him. She hands him his thermos full of coffee. 
and he's like, Oh, I gotta go. And she, he walks out. He doesn't say anything to her. Like he doesn't like, he's not, he doesn't give her a kiss. He's like, Hey, you want to meet up? Hey, Nope. And she like snaps at the cook. She like yells at the cook to go cook that omelet now. And the, I mean, that's, that's the relationship that we've come to find that they have, which is basically. Yeah. They're a Jerry Springer episode waiting to happen. RIP. Oh, he's, he is missed. Absolutely. But yeah, it's such an odd relationship. I mean, great side character in that uh, church, the cook, like with his droopy uh, sailor hat. Because of course, like who on the, he's on the island, you got to have a sailor cap. There's so much great wardrobe in this. The sailor cap is one piece for him. I think Jake had the best costumes. Like the first time you see him, he's wearing uh, overalls with a sport coat over it and his uh, Red Sox hat. They look great in this. Like uh, Beth's outfit when she comes off the plane. Her little power outfit when she goes into the caves. I mean, it all looks very like small town islandish, right? It's they're definitely people that you would expect to see in a in a small town little village like this. So all the characters feel very much like lived in in terms of being in this in this town. The relationships they have with each other all seem very real. But we now cut to a scene of. Dr. Morgan Hubbard showing up prior to this. The mayor has called iTech to tell them about the dead dog and that he's concerned and that, you know, he's that the town sheriff and everything wants to know what's going on. So they send this doctor, Dr. Morgan Hubbard to get off the plane and she does work with Entech and she's there to investigate what could have killed this dog. And the sheriff is immediately suspicious of her. The mayor tells the sheriff that he is no longer going to be investigating anything to do with the the dog death or anything that this is what they sent Dr. Hubbard for. Uh, and, you know, immediately you tell you can tell that this is kind of a no nonsense sort of person. I mean, what Roger, what did you think of Dr. Morgan Hubbard when she stepped off this plane? I mean, if I was going to use a word to describe Dr. Morgan Hubbard, it would be severe. Um, This woman is very stone cold, serious, but with a hint of humor. And when there is humor, it's always dark. Like, it seems like whenever she finds out, like, the cockroaches are eating people or, I don't know, doing horrible things, she's got, like, a smirk on her face. So I never trust her. If anyone here is, like, the villain, I would say, it's Dr. Morgan Hubbard. But even she takes, like, a strange... Uh, kind of like left turn when it gets to the end of the movie that like she kind of doesn't even feel like a villain. The thing about this movie is like you've got the mayor, you've got Dr. Morgan, Morgan Hubbard. They both have villainous elements, but like they don't stick to it, you know? So I guess the only villain really in this movie is the killer cockroaches and what they mutate into. And that's fine, but I do like my my horror cinema uh, to have an antagonist in a human form as well. Like when you have a film like this, Yes, I get it. The cockroaches are 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 the the key opponents here, but like I do think there needs to be a human element that kind of carries through, um, kind of like in Night of the Living Dead. You have a Harry Cooper, but then you also have the zombies. You know, in this, I feel like Doctor Morgan Hubbard is starts off as being very maniacal. I mean, she is like a Frankenstein of cockroaches, uh, but then she kind of like makes choices towards the end of the movie that are aiding the group or helping them. I guess they're kind of selfish in her own way. I, I don't know. I, I just, I'm kind of baffled by the route they take with her character, but when she's introduced, I really like her. She is definitely like an interesting foil to play off of the other characters and that she's just very like suspicious and like 
uh, comedically so almost. They play her so very dastardly and and when like certain things start to come out about her when they learn because here in a little bit they learn that she was like kicked out of mit and uh because she was doing like illegal experiments and then her excuses for it sure make her just sound worse than she already is like i I don't know i don't trust the broad um but i think she's played well i do think that the character is portrayed well on camera Uh, she's a great character i mean dr hubbard like Dr. Hubbard is what I would imagine Vidal Sassoon would look like as a person. Like, it's, and the fact that she has so many elements of, you know, uh, from Hellraiser as well as, I would say, uh, Bride of Reanimator. You know, like that whole sequence where she, you know, she's got the roaches all over her hand and they're just chewing away at her and she's fucking into it. It's like that weird pseudo-psychosexual kind of thing and like the mayor there as well in his Pamela Voorhees sweater oh oh my yeah it's a very interesting character and there are moments where she could she could totally be a villain like there are moments where like the sheriff's being attacked and she could totally let him be be killed but then she doesn't fully commit to being a villain but then there are other moments where you think oh yeah she's she's insane but it just never fully comes to fruition with with her particular character although her Ending is is quite satisfying, I will say. But she is taken to examine the carcass, and she immediately takes the rib, a rib from this dead dog. And the mayor asks her, "Well, have you ever had a dog, Doctor Hubbard?" She's like, huh, "Not till now." And it should be noted that, like you said, Zach, every time she is engaging with like things that these roaches have killed, or she's engaging with the roaches themselves, she is giddy. She is giddy as hell. She is laughing. She's smiling. She's you know, almost like orgasmic. Like she could not be more. Th- I want to know if there's an outtake where she uh, eats the rib because it totally looks like a baby back from fucking chili. Yeah. She, and she is all into it. She is smiling and grinning away. I mean, she is a moment away from, I'm, I think she's a moment away from masturbating with that rib actually, because it's, she is just like <laughs> all, uh, she is on the brink of ecstasy seeing this dead carcass slowly turns into Ken Russell's the devils. <laughs> Uh, so Millie radios the sheriff who's also watching Dr. Hubbard orgasm over this dead dog. And she tells him that the girl that working at the supermarket has had some issues with the meat department and that he needs to go check it out. The sheriff, you got to give him credit. He is suspicious of Dr. Morgan Hubbard from, from second one because he even asks Millie. He's like, hey, Millie, find out what you can about a Dr. Morgan Hubbard. And Millie's like, is that a real name? What are you even doing out there, Sheriff? My big gripe with this scene coming up here is you got this moment coming up at the grocery store where you've seen this character of Jenny one time before. She's only existing with headphones. Um, and, and she's actually like pretty competent on camera, the young woman playing her. She's fine, likable. But I can't put my finger on what it is about this character. She just, I don't understand the purpose she serves. And she kind of comes and she goes. She has kind of a key scene coming up here in a little bit. But I'm going to put it out there right now. We never find out what happens to this character. And it it haunts me through the rest of the film. Like, if at least show me a body reveal or something. If you're going to have her come into play a couple of times here, like Jenny does, with this very strange scene coming up with the pancakes, as we'll come to find out, um, this character deserved to die, in my opinion. 
She's always wearing aerobic outfits. Who who works at a supermarket wearing their aerobics gear? Apparently she does. That's all she wears. <laughs> but we she's also the 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 Mrs. Pennington's niece, right? Yes, you're correct with that. Yes. But the 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 mayor or the sheriff shows up at the supermarket and she is there with a package of devoured meat that has all the little black droppings on it. And she is like, "I don't know what could have caused this, sheriff. What do you think?" He's like, well, doesn't Perkins have mice? And she's like, yeah, I thought about that, but look at this. And she shows him like some cord. I, I don't know what this was supposed to insinuate. Did you guys catch this? Like what? If, because he asks her, does the supermarket have mice? And she's like, yes, I thought about that. But look, but then I saw this and all it is is a cut cord. I'm like, okay, what? So these things manage to eat through a cord. I don't, I don't know. know. It doesn't really. But what's it have to know. do? What's it have to do with the supermarket having mice? Though? I know. I know, yeah, yeah. I I was thinking it was going to kind of tie into something else, but yeah, this character has a bunch of open ended things that just never are fully realized or satisfied. It's it's weird. Let's talk about the moment where she has she's got maple syrup running down her thighs. Like I thought it was urine. That's something. I I mean, how what the, what the fuck is that coming up? We'll talk about that in a minute. But like this character, I just don't get it. I don't understand what purpose she serves. Yeah, there's definitely a lot where it feels like the, there's these characters that pop up that were like, oh, we'll just save them for either a death or the sequel, and they never set up any of that. Can you imagine a sequel just about Jenny? She opened up her she opened up her own aerobics studio and the cockroaches are attacking the rope. Oh my god. <laughs> her and Sai, they fall in love. <laughs> he, he, she can't fall in love with Sai. He's dead. Troy, you know I have a, a love uh, I have a love for movies where they have women come back and wife beaters with shotguns troy knows this bring back give me the nest too and bring back jenny put her in a wife beater give her a shotgun and a, and a torch and let her just get her revenge on the death of her aunt which we come to find happens here soon as well Ooh. okay so this next scene back in the field guys dr hubbard is setting up a trap or an experiment to trap whatever it is that's been killing these this the dogs and whatnot and what she decides to use as bait is this cat the stray cat that, that wanders up to the scene and so she puts the cat in the cage and they're waiting around and the mayor's getting a little impatient he's like when, when what's when's this going to happen she's like well hopefully anytime and all of a sudden we hear the buzzing and all of a sudden the grass starts shaking and this cat is attacked we hear it like screaming and whatnot and, and meowing and screaming and whatnot, but we also see it um, like flailing around in the cage and all bloodied um, until it pretty much it dies. I don't know, guys. I I mean, I it's a movie. I know it's not real, but I know that this would probably bother a lot of people now. You don't really see a lot of death, animal deaths in films now because I feel like people have gotten really like sensitive to that but this was 87 um i don't feel like it was that big of a taboo but this is a pretty like in your face like animal death sequence i mean it 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 shows it it doesn't shy away from like showing this cat being i mean it's not food of the gods but yeah it is it is up there i don't know if it's as bad as like cannibal holocaust maybe well that was no 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 because that was a real animal death this is more like fantastical yeah because all of it, like, the gore is realistic, but, like, it's cockroaches. You know what I mean? So it, it, this subgenre is fun because it plays with, like, that kind of fear. Like, 
like Roger was saying, like he's worried there's roaches around him right now. And like, you know, like that's a great psychological thing, like to be grossed out. Like how many horror films gross you out? I think what really stands out about this moment is there's two specific shots here of the cat being attacked. You really don't see a ton of it, but you see two specific shots directly on the cat. First one, it's clear that its head is like being pinned down in a way. Uh, and it's thrashing. Like you can tell the cat itself is very uncomfortable. The second shot, it looks as though the cat is, you know, being attacked and eaten. And the cat itself is screaming and thrashing. Whatever they did to get the cat to react, even if somebody is reaching underneath it and grabbing it, you know, through a slot in the box that we don't see, it looks extremely uncomfortable for the cat. So I think what really stands out about this scene is it took getting the cat into a certain level of of stress and uh, just reaction um, in order for it to to give this visual to sell it, to sell that this cat is quote unquote being killed in this scene. Even if the cat in reality is not being killed, something is happening that's making it react that way because a cat cannot act that well. I'm sorry. I mean, it, it looks, it's a really creepy shot. The cat covered in blood. That's another thing. The cat's literally just covered in red. Like, I mean, this cat in real life, this cat was fucking pissed off after this was done. Oh, it was yeah. pissed. It was unhappy. And so I think that does translate here. Uh, whatever they did to get those shots is very uncomfortable to watch, but it makes for a scene that is really like, yeah, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. Like you see this cat, it's adorable. It's done no wrong. Um, I'm curious why those cockroaches know to go right for the goddamn cat and don't just go around the box and start eating these humans uh, because we've learned that they have a taste for human flesh as well. But whatever, I mean, like, yeah, they're lured into the box. You don't see the cockroaches. I think one thing that does kind of pop about a few of these opening sequences is like, you know, you, you see these things happening, but the cockroaches, I guess you're supposed to be under the understanding that they're like, they're just not visible from the angle we're seeing it. But after a few of these shots, it is kind of weird because when you do finally see the cockroaches, Troy, you said this earlier, a lot of them are really big. Like you get a lot of different varying sizes of cockroaches. So the fact we just don't see them in these sequences, it feels a little disjointed, I guess, but the scene is still very creepy. It makes me uncomfortable watching that fucking cat. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's what makes this scene a little bit uh, difficult to watch is the cat's reaction because it is the real cat. Like this isn't a puppet cat. This is the real cat. You can totally tell. Um, And they're doing something to it to make it react so strongly and so aggressively. You know, back uh, from this scene, you go to the lab where she is, where Dr. Hubbard is totally enamored by these roaches. And she even calls them very brave creatures. And the mayor's asking if they can be contained. And she replies, well, the the way they gather on the carcass, it's like they're belligerent and almost warlike. And then this is the first time we see, like it shows the cat carcass and we see that it is covered with roaches. So it's our first glimpse that what has been terrorizing everything has indeed just been cockroaches. And the doctor is borderline lustful in this dialogue delivery as she stands there with bated breath, her chest heaving with anticipation. I mean, the doctor, there are several times I feel that the doctor is getting herself off looking at these fucking cockroaches. I don't know what's going on in this woman's mind. Um, the, 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 the choices she makes coming up here, feeding her hand to the goddamn cockroaches, not normal. This woman clearly has something wrong with her. So I, I am, again, confused by how this character is written because she makes some very strange choices coming up. I love the fact that she's the one that this global company in tech, the ultimate evil empire baddies, 
they sent her. You know what I mean? Like in any other movie, she would have showed up with a fucking eye patch or, you know, like it's it's so ridiculous. And that's the thing with this movie is there's so many bad guys because like Intech is supposed to be the ultimate bad guy. They're the ones that made these killer cockroaches. But I guess they don't come off as that maniacal. But then like once you realize what's really going on, yeah, they I guess they are the ultimate uh, villain of the film uh, with Dr. Hubbard kind of being their their wingman to carry out what they want to accomplish. Homer now is at the diner spraying and Lillian makes the mistake of calling him an exterminator. And he has to correct her. He's like, I'm a pest control agent. And start, he starts lecturing her about how you can't exterminate something that's been on the earth for all these years. And just then Beth happens to wander into this diner, which leads me to believe that Beth has no idea that the sheriff has been seeing Lillian. Because why else? Why would she walk into the diner if she knew this? Lillian is, of course, a bitch to her and asks, oh, I heard you were in town. What are you moving back? And Beth is like, no, I, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. And this is when she tells Beth, hey, I'm, a, I'm on the 40 side of 30. I spend my day serving broken eggs to yokels. Uh, my dad lives in a garbage dump. And when I'm not here, the only man in town worth anything is visiting me. So you better decide. I'm like, you tell her, Lillian, you tell her. Whole speech is so amazing. Like Lillian is somebody that I want to see uh, RuPaul have on Snatch Game type character. <laughs> it's, I think it's a, a great speech, but it, overall it's not, uh, it's not enough when you acknowledge that this is the last moment she has that really even confronts the issue. I'm pretty sure this is the last moment she truly has with the sheriff before he discovers her body in a freezer. So like, I mean, it, it's, I, yes, it's a good moment that she stands up for herself and she kind of puts Beth in her place, but it's literally maybe like three or four sentences. She says like, it's not, a, it's not enough to make me feel like overall this character receives the kind of big moment that she deserves in order for her death to feel palatable to me, you know? So I, I mean, yes, I think she's good in the moment. I, I like that she has a brief moment uh, for herself, but I don't feel it's enough in my opinion. See, I think that's what makes her such a great character because she's the one character that nobody listens to that everybody should listen to. Or she's like, Hey, telling Beth, you should stay away from this guy. Like you're not going to treat him right. At least I will even though we both know he's a piece of shit. And she also tells Church to quit playing in the garbage, and then he has that amazing death scene in the dumpster. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, but I wish that Lillian would have stood up to the sheriff when he was in there earlier instead of taking it out on Beth. Because Beth, I like I said, I don't think Beth has any idea that the sheriff has even, being, has even been seeing Lillian. So for Lillian to be upset with Beth seems a little bit misplaced in, in my mind. She should have stood up to the sheriff and been like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, but you know, it is a good moment for her. But like Roger said, I, I also think that it's kind of just like, eh, okay. Because then we don't really spend any more time with her and tell her weird, really weird death scene. Back at the lab, Dr. Hubbard is examining the cockroaches further and she says that she admires the nymph ones that can reproduce without the male. So now we're getting the idea that these cockroaches can reproduce just sexually. Uh, and then this is the moment where she has this gloved hand 
she has a glove on her hand and her hand is overtaken with these cockroaches. And she's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And the sheriff's like, or the, the mayor's like, what, what's happening? She's like, they're biting me. They're biting me. They're biting my hand. And he's like, well, remove your hand from the glove. And she's like, Oh, Oh, and he's like, Oh my God, remove your hand from the glove. And he literally has to run over there to pull her hand out of the glove. And it's covered in blood. Like these cockroaches were biting the shit out of her hand. And she was literally on the verge of orgasming. Over it. Why is this her response? I get that. She's like, Oh, there's a breakthrough. My, all of my dastardly plans are coming to fruition, I guess. But like for her to be so like, I mean, it's, it's so erotic, this moment. Wide-eyed, just watching on, panting as these things devour her hand. I mean, and she's fine with it. And like, it's not like it's not like they injure her and then she dies here soon. Like, I mean, she's just got a bandaged hand for the rest of the movie, and it's never really addressed again that this woman like borderline masturbated her to the being her having her hand eaten off. Like, it just. Do you think this is what got her kicked out of MIT? Yes! <laughs> Absolutely! If this is the kind of nonsense that was going on in that lab, can you imagine walking in being like, hey, morning, Morgan, how's it going? Holy shit! And she's standing there, she's like, it's eating my hand, like, covered in cockroaches. I'd be like, this woman is a liability. There's something horrible that's going to happen. Someone's going to die here. It's probably going to be her getting her hand eaten off by cockroaches. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that this is why she's had problems with her education and career. Uh, because this is not normal for anybody to want this for themselves. But I think she's such a great character because, like, on a sexual level, like, she's not like any other woman on that island. Uh, she's one of the, the few like the two characters competing for the sheriff are both blonde. You know what I mean? So she's the only like real brunette that makes her stand out even more. And it's such a presence. And the goofy shit she says is the best because uh, it's just this weird pseudo sexual thing. Like they're almost warlike. Like that's insane. Like that's what this infestation is supposed to be like. Well, yes, but I, I, okay, I, I'll hear you on this, Zach, but I'm going to say this. When I think of this movie, and I, I get it, there's maybe some moments of people laying in bed together and so forth, and the poster has a woman being raped by a cockroach, but overall, I don't look at the movie The Nest and think sexuality in any way, shape, or form. So to throw this aggressively sexual woman into the film who all of her sexual energy is geared to completely to the cockroaches. It just seems like a bold move. Like I don't, I don't get, I don't get who sat down and wrote this script and said, you know what we should do with this character? We should make her think that it's fucking hot that the cockroaches want to eat her. Like she should fucking get wet. You know, who? you know who wrote this fan of them all. Eric that makes sense. Like, well, that was nonsense too. So it makes sense. Yeah. The sex scenes in that compared to this, because it's, the smartest way would be like the roaches are reproducing. So we need to show humans doing the same thing. Like there's a, a strong lack of sex scenes in this movie, which during this era, I think this was, uh, you know, late eighties, like we're this full tilt. It was boob, boob, butt cheek, butt cheek, something in slow-mo. And you get to say fuck once. Um, that's your PG 13 or, you know, you get to say fuck three times for an R. You know, and that's the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, there are. Yeah, this movie has no nudity whatsoever, uh, which is interesting because it did come out in the 80s or around the same time as some of these other films that were very, like you said, gratuitous with with the nudity. And this chooses not to go that way. Um, 
Although you wouldn't know it, like like we talked about, you wouldn't know it from the from the box art of that girl in her panties being mounted by that giant cockroach. <laughs> Beth does some more exploring in the woods, and she does come across another animal carcass. And we cut back to the lab where the mayor tells the doctor he's he's done with her shenanigans. He's like, "Stop screwing around and kill him." And she says that that's what she intends on doing. So she gets this retinone and she starts to spray the roaches with a dose of it, but it doesn't actually kill the roach. So she has to increase the dose and it works. The cockroach dies and the mayor's like, oh, well, do you have enough of that to gas all of them? And she says, yes, but the dose of retinone that high is lethal to humans. And so he has this plan. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to evacuate the island then and get these people off so we can do this. And she's like, no, don't, don't go to those extremes yet. Just give me 24 hours. That's all I'm asking 24 hours. And so he hesitantly agrees. I mean, who could, who could say no to her pouty, her pouty lips and blue eyes as she's begging for 24 hours. I was going to say, this is totally like where it's the dollar store version of jaws of, you know, (laughs) it's, we got to be open for the season, you know? And that that's what is so ridiculous about it is just like the timing of it all. Like you should have evacuated in the beginning and you didn't. And now you're fucked and it's only going to get worse. So it's this amazing like time clock to the movie as well. It's weird because it's not, you think that it would be like towards a holiday or something like that, but it's really kind of just like whenever the tourists show up. I think it's problematic that he gives her an extra 24 hours also because like cockroaches multiply very quickly and they can like withstand anything. And there are like boats coming and going from the island. Like, don't tell me that mutant cockroaches have not always already like gotten onto the ships and everything and like started spreading around the world. Like it is going to take a matter of hours for these things to start getting off the island let alone another 24 hours a whole fucking day like that's a horrible idea so i i think that this is a poorly planned sequence uh there's also the moment where like beth is going through her house and um she's finding all of these things about like her past like finding out she recently found out that her um mother in fact killed herself like that was one of the things that got her to go find that uh, that no trespassing area where the other carcass is revealed. That's what really got her to leave the house to begin with, was she stumbled upon all this information about her mom that her father had hidden. And there's a moment where you even see like a cockroach like tumble into one of the boxes. She doesn't even fucking notice it. So these things, like, do you know how easy it is for these things to start spreading quickly? Uh, there needs to be some fire lit under these people's asses. This is a problem. It needs to get under control immediately. We do not have 24 hours. Well, and we already know this doctor is not playing with the full deck because she just let a whole slew of cockroaches chew on her hand and almost had an orgasm over it. So the the mayor's decision to, to oh, I'm going to trust this woman is, is yes, quite problematic. Uh, but Beth does wander into this cave that she is familiar with because there is a heart with Elizabeth and Richard w- written on the wall. And then she finds like their old Monopoly game and she opens it and there's like this little IOU that's in there and some cockroaches scurry around. And it's just to establish that Elizabeth is familiar with this cave system and where these caves are uh, because that does come into play here towards the end of the film. Uh, The sheriff has hunted down Homer and pulls up next to him on the road and asks Homer to take a look at these black droppings that he pulled off of the cat and dog carcass. Because Homer has established himself as being like the expert on 
insects, pests, because he's a pest control agent. So am I, did I see this correctly, but does he not lick one of these things? Oh, absolutely. It's disgusting. Okay. Yes. I thought I was like, okay, at first I thought he smelled it. And then the second time I watched him, I'm like, oh shit, no, he licked it. He licks it and then proudly says, yeah, yeah, they're paraplanetta. And the sheriff's like, yeah, can you say that in plain English? She's like, yeah, cockroach droppings. I'm like, dude, you just licked cockroach shit. What? That's a great gross out moment too. Like it's, it, it's not divine eating dog shit, pink flamingos level, but I'm sure it was probably just like a fucking little Hershey kiss rolled up and <laughs> into a splinter kind of thing. But uh, no, it's another great gross out moment in this movie. Like they take all the shots that they can get. And this is the point where Homer, I would say starts to really become kind of a pivotal character. Cause as we do move towards like the final third act of the film, Homer does kind of step up more and become more of a prevalent aspect of the storyline. I wish Homer, yeah, Homer is like, he's like the off brand Howie Mandel. Like it's, it, I feel like this script was written for people that they were, were hoping they could, could get, you know, like, the sheriff is very David Naughton. Um, you know, Homer is is very Howie Mandel. Like, I mean, these are people that were making those movies this time when that was coming out. So Millie does call the sheriff on the radio and interrupts his little uh, interaction with Homer to tell him that she got the scoop on Dr. Hubbard. And she was a hot shot of genetics at MIT until she got she was let go for illegal experiments. Now I like at the same time that Millie is telling him this on the radio, the mayor and uh, Dr. Hubbard are back at the lab or wherever they've been doing all this shit. And the mayor has the radio right there. And so, so they can, they can hear exactly what, um, what uh, Millie is telling the sheriff and Dr. Hubbard's like very casual. She's like, do you find the sheriff as big of a pest as I do? (laughs) I love that line. I don't know. The way she delivers it just has me just had me cracking up. I thought she was gonna be way more maniacal with it as things went on too. Like, didn't that make you think like she was gonna try to fucking kill him? I did. I did think that. And there's that moment where he's being attacked by the cat carcass that I thought she was gonna not step it up, but she does. But I just love the way she delivers it. So like non like matter of factly, it's it's kind of funny. So Beth is in this cave, back in this cave, and she actually hears the cockroaches. We hear the uh, the, sh- the the buzzing noise, and she s- senses that something's chasing her. So she runs through the cave, and she runs into these like giant egg sacks that are hanging from the ceiling. These things look disgusting. The giant nut sacks. They look disgusting. They look yes, like fucking, they look like old. They look like fucking droopy testes. Old men nuts. And she runs out of the cave. Back at the mayor's mansion, James is adamant. That, he, that tomorrow at dawn, he has taken that search party into the caves and he's going to put a stop to this. The mayor's like, absolutely not. You will stay out of the caves. Everything is under control. And Sheriff is like, it doesn't look like it's under control to me. They have such a weird relationship because it's like, that's private property. And it's, it's like, you should just say, I'm the fucking sheriff. Like, I mean, I can go where I want. Exactly. Like I have jurisdiction over this town. I'm here to protect it. Why? How are, who are you to tell me where I can and can't go? Hubbard actually has to interject with him and says, I was not thrown out of MIT. I left voluntarily. And then she launches into this dialogue about uh, the day will come when there will be no need for pesticides. The genetic engineering is the future. And while she's delivering this, she like picks up a picture of Beth's mom. And I love this little moment because Beth gets up, grabs it out of her hand and slams it back down on the desk. 
Oh, dude, that was some Telemundo shit right there. I love yeah. it. Straight yeah. out of Dynasty. I feel like this moment, when she's like pleading her case for why she's not crazy, I don't think she really does a very good job of it. Because by the end of it, she sounds crazier to me than when she started her story to begin with. I mean, she just basically just confirmed, yes, I, I'm claiming that I wasn't thrown out. I left by choice, but everything else is completely accurate. I am crazy. I am looking to mutate cockroaches. Um, I will do anything within my power to make sure it comes true. Like, she really is painting herself to be the villain. Well, and she also admits to doing experiments there in North Point. She's like, well, I've done some experiments here. Yeah, true, but... I'm, I'm I'm doing it for the for the good of the cause or whatever she says. Yeah, she does not do herself any favors with this speech, and the sheriff is having none of it. Beth is pleading with her dad. She's like, "Please come to the case with me," and he because something was chasing me. He's like, "No, I will absolutely not stay out of the caves. It's handled." And the sheriff like gets Beth by the arm and he's leading her out. The mayor yells after the sheriff, "Like I told you, remember, stay out of those caves." And the sheriff responds by saying. My dad told me this day would come and he walks over to the mayor and hands him his badge. So it's insinuated that he quits. I actually like this move on his behalf. Yeah, but okay. He quits, but then he acts like the sheriff the rest of the movie. Like he either quit or he did. Yeah. He doesn't stop doing it. Yeah. It's it's a weird moment because like for him to be the doofy cop that takes accountability and responsibility, like he has to hand it to him. But like. If it was any other action star, like Stallone would have thrown it like a ninja star and it would have stuck into the like the, the mantle by the fireplace kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of lame duck, especially because literally the next thing he does is go remove bodies from the beach. So like, yeah. Yeah, it, there's it, no point for him to quit. Like he goes he has back no time. to work. He does. He goes right back to work. But I, I admire the... I admire the the symbolism behind it. I suppose. Yeah, I think it was more of a. I think I think it was more of a. Yeah, symbol. It's a symbolism instead of. I don't think he actually really quit because if he really quit, yeah, it, it didn't really register because he left and did everything that he would do as sheriff in the first place. Let me ask you this: Do you think he should have hit the mayor? Because that's something I always thought. I don't know. Maybe it was for a little dramatic effect. I mean, I don't know. Uh, a slap fight. Yeah, because there's such am- animosity between the two characters that you really do want to see it come to sort of a head at some point. And this is about the 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 strongest that head gets is oh him slamming him handing he doesn't even like throw it. I mean him handing the mayor his badge. Yeah, there could have been a bigger confrontation between the two of them. It maybe would have had a little bit more payoff. But yeah, it's kind of it's kind of lame. Back at Lillian's diner, the cook is taking out the trash, and he throws the trash in the dumpster into like. I guess to push the trash down more, he gets into the dumpster and is like pushing it down. He's inside the dumpster, pushing the trash down and he pulls his arm out and it is literally covered in cockroaches. It is so disgusting. Their blood is running everywhere and he starts screaming. What does he say? He screams something ridiculous. It's like, oh my Lord or something. And just blood is coming down. And then he gets pulled into the dumpster. And Lillian's out front sweeping, and she does see the sheriff drive by with Beth in the car. I feel like the cook's death here is a more lackluster version of the cook death in the Blob remake, which I already kind of touched on. I feel there's moments in this film that give me severe Blob remake 
um, vibes, even though the Blob remake came out in 1988, so a year after this, so maybe it took some inspiration from that. Who knows? But, um, you know, you've got, you've got this whole moment with him. He's in the dumpster. He raises up his arm. It is disgusting that this actor's arm is literally covered in cockroaches. Like, it is gross. It makes my skin crawl. But then he, like, Margaret Hamilton melts into the <laughs> into the goddamn dumpster. And it it is, like, it's kind of comedic where he's, like, as he, like, lowers into the dumpster. Because it's not like you really see anything. You just see the man literally just lower off camera. Um but I, I, you know, I find it funny. I like it, especially because she doesn't even pick up on it. She's too busy being fucking spiteful towards her former lover and his new girlfriend. I'd be pissed off as well. That whole sequence looks like a Shania Twain music video, too, doesn't it? Like, she's fucking sweeping, and then he drives by in that fucking Ford Bronco, like OJ. <laughs> like <laughs> That don't impress me much. Yeah, the mayor is, in the meantime, trying to call iTech to get a hold of somebody, but the Mr. Hauser he wants to talk to is not available, and the mayor's like, it's a matter of life and death. You do get this moment with Beth and the sheriff back at home, where the sheriff actually makes the comment to Beth that, you know, I don't believe your dad would do anything to hurt the people of North Point. And she's like, well, you don't know my dad very well. And this is when it is revealed that after the funeral, she went upstairs and found her mom's suicide note. Her dad has been lying to her this whole time and lying to the town by saying that it was a drug overdose when it was actually a suicide. And what better lead in to have sex than just to than telling your partner that you've, your mom committed suicide. But that's what it leads to, the two have sex. I also like that like leading up to this moment, he's trying to like prepare his hovel of a home to make it acceptable for her to be there. And he's still trying to like, I mean, I'm not saying that he isn't planning on fucking this woman. It's evident that this man is planning on leaving his former girlfriend for this woman, but he's still being kind of like proper. And so when he walks up to hand her a shirt, she opens the bathroom door and steps out and just fucking like, She's standing there butt cheek naked. Like they don't show it, but you know that she's just standing there tits out. And like And she, they could have. They they could have. But you know she's just knockers out to the wind and he's like, Oh what? So like he's gotta fuck her now. But like, I mean, she is it's not like she's standing up for her fellow woman. She's as in on this torrid affair as the sheriff is. Like neither of them give a fuck about Lillian at all. Here's the thing, too. So he grabs that shirt. He's sniffing around doing the whole Bill Murray from Ghostbusters kind of thing. Finds that pink shirt and hands it to her. I'm convinced that that's one of Lillian's shirts and not his. And, like, you could have had this amazing moment there of, like, her wearing the other woman's shirt. Oh, that fucking whore. He's a fucking whore and so is she. If that's if that's Lillian's blouse, he could go fuck himself. Right? Like, there's so much drama here. Like, the writing is there. Like, I feel like it, it's a low-budget movie. And I think what succeeds at it is this writing of these characters. Like, these women are, they're fl- they're flawed but interesting. It's like a fucking, like, the far side calendar version of women put to a horror movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's... <laughs> it does kind of... Now that you mention it, it does kind of look like a woman's shirt, doesn't it? Because she's wearing it the rest of the film, right? That pink shirt? I mean, it's definitely a woman's shirt, I would say. Well, who's who else is it would have been then if it's not Lillian's? I, this is definitely when she takes on her Ellie Sattler uh, apparel, her look, by the way. Uh, because this whole, like, 
pink top tied up with a high riding denim uh, jean. Uh, looks makes her look very much like she's going on an, a feminine safari in a way. Um, but this is kind of like the, her final, uh, like her Patricia Tallman barbarification from the Night of the Living Dead Savini remake. She becomes a little more badass when she puts on this outfit. I appreciate that about her. Yeah, I'm here for it. Uh, Homer goes up. Uh, Homer shows up to Jake's junkyard with some booze, a big old bottle of booze that apparently Lillian gives him to take to her father because he's like, Lillian gave us the best tonight. And he's acting drunk. I, I don't know. Apparently he's drunk, but they, I guess he's showing up to play checkers when he sees like the body in the bed and he pulls the cover back and it is covered in cockroaches. Homer's stone though, isn't he? Cause he rolls, doesn't he roll a doobie in front of the sheriff when he gives him the, the insecticide? It could be. I, I didn't catch that if he did. I was I was thinking he was drinking some of that gallon of booze he's carrying around. But he could be hot. He's, so, he's intoxicated with something. It's either he's drugs or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he pulls back the, the sheet on Homer, and he Homer's literally, we see his face, is covered in cockroaches. Um, and, of course, Homer takes off running. He runs back out to his motorcycle, and his motorcycle bike seat is covered in cockroaches. So he just takes off down the street. I like this reveal, like under the hat. The, I mean, it's very strategically placed. These cockroaches knew exactly what they were doing with this reveal. It's very dramatic. But I like that you see, like that his lips have been eaten off. You see his eyes have been eaten out. Like it's a, it's a cool, fun little reveal. Um, but yeah, uh, these cockroaches move quick. He gets back to that motorcycle, and there it is covered in cockroaches within seconds. They're very picky and choosy about when they reveal them themselves to people like the cockroaches come and go but when they attack they like they, they like swarm or else sometimes they're just gone completely it's very weird the timing of the cockroaches and when they come about the mayor has gotten a hold of this hauser from intech and he tells hauser hey if you guys don't take immediate action i'm gonna call the la times and, and we're, this is gonna be a new story and hauser's like no 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 that's the wrong decision mr mayor you you better think twice about that there's a lot of people whose livelihoods are, are counting on this development of your island so again i kind of thought this was going to lead somewhere like maniacal with like um intel have sending in somebody sending someone to take out the mayor but that really doesn't that doesn't happen either uh back at his place richard and beth find i mean they're talking she's saying oh you should go back to la with me he's like no you should move back here when they like go into his bedroom to, to or go into the bathroom and they see cockroaches on the floor and they start like swatting at them and they then see some of them coming out of the toilet bowl so they lift up the toilet bowl and then the entire fucking toilet bowl is full of cockroaches full of them like over flooding with cockroaches it's so gross i loved it i loved yeah, it it is disgusting it's just literally just full so they take off running out of the, and get into his car and he radios millie and she breaks the unfortunate news to him that they found gordon they found roger gordon and the missing tourist girl why they didn't show this as like something that comes up pretty much instantaneously within the film uh, because one of the first things she says to him earlier on in the movie is about these, these, you know, this girl missing. Um, and then it does come into play that the bodies are discovered. I do feel like there is a missed opportunity with this uh, because when the bodies are brought up off the beach by him and Sai, who comes out of fucking nowhere to help him lug bodies in a pickup truck. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if you're, if you're doing a horror movie, why wouldn't you show one of the opening what could have been one of the op one of the opening mysteries that's introduced here? These two individuals 
you know, being killed off. I'm, I'm disappointed that I didn't see what happened to them, especially if it is associated with the cockroaches, which I'm assuming it is. It's just a weird call to not show it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it was to add the air of mystery, but yeah. And, you know, at least at the beginning of the film of like, what is going on in this town? What is it that's stalking people? But by now we know it's the cockroaches. So at least you could give us a good body reveal, but, but we don't get that. We do, on the other hand, Roger, get a scene that um, is absurd, but I love it. It's the uh, Jenny and her aunt librarian Pennington scene where Jenny is taking her aunt. What is, is it? Pancakes? Yes. It's pancakes. So she's taking her aunt, this woman. Pancakes. Yeah, this woman. <laughs> this woman is bedridden. She has no business eating pancakes, but Jenny has taken them to her. And she spills some of them on the floor and like literally <laughs> leaves a trail of syrup <laughs> right to her poor aunt. And, you know, she gives her aunt these pancakes. And this woman is so fucking elated to get these pancakes. She's like, oh, my God, you didn't have to do this. It's pancake. She is the happiest she's ever been in her life. Well, look at this woman. Of course she is. And, <laughs> and the woman's leg is broken, as we come to find, but it's never explained how or why. Like, you do get these little, like, tidbits of characters that are just thrown in at random scenes, but I know nothing about them. So this relationship between Clara, as we've learned her first name's Clara, and Jenny, this whole, like, relationship with Jenny living with her, this is the first we learn about any of it, and it's not explored at all. So it, it, it feels awkward i mean the scene's awkward like i don't know what the fuck's going on she's got maple syrup running on her thighs it, like i said earlier it looks like she's pissing herself it's awkward because it's supposed to be awkward is the it's why it's so fun with it because she's got that syrup going upper leg kind of thing so it's this other weird fetishism to the movie as well you know and like the pancakes like i can be into that have you ever been sad when you had pancakes i wish i had pancakes right now you know I mean, I just, Jenny is not capable of really, like, she can't make pancakes, she can't even carry a plate without dropping shit. Like, this girl definitely seems like she's kind of simple. Um, well, she's a, bl- she's a blonde. She's, she's a stereotypical blonde. ditzy blonde. She's cute. She is cute. And, you know, she's wearing these giant headphones, these 80 head- 80s headphones that her aunt's like, you're going to lose your hearing with that. Um and what what ends up happening is this trail of syrup that Jenny has led into her aunt's room uh, attracts the cockroaches, and they literally like start marching in, get on this poor woman's bed, and she sees them, and she's like, "Oh, oh!" No. And they it culminates with them crawling in her cast and literally eating her foot, and then attacking her, and she's screaming bloody murder for Jenny. Jenny can't hear her because Jenny's in the bathroom uh, with these giant headphones on, and then we get this sh- shot of like back to Clara in beds trying to scream and the cockroaches have just like invaded her mouth. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. The fact that there is no conclusion to this sequence, it, both a, a, a good body reveal for Clara. Cause after all that, like I need someone to stumble upon her and just find her completely consumed by cockroaches. But also like you've got the setup of like this cute little blonde with headphones on. So she doesn't know what the fuck's going on. You're setting it up for me that she's going into this bathroom and you're not going to come back and revisit this and give this a payoff. Like, what a waste. Like, this conclusion to the sequence, while it's definitely a fun buildup, and I enjoy seeing that obese woman with her cast getting eaten alive by cockroaches, like, I was expecting a conclusion. And then to not give me any form of a death scene with Jenny, like, did she survive? Is she still on the island to this day? Like, what's going on with her? I don't know. I felt like 
it, it, it seemed like something else was supposed to be filmed and it never got finished. Like it does feel very incomplete. Uh, this is where I chime in and say uh, anybody listening that wants to make uh, a sequel to The Nest, we're here for it. <laughs> With Jenny. We need Jenny back. We need to find out. I need closure. I guess you're supposed to make the inference that she was probably killed too because she had that syrup on her thigh. And you know damn well those cockroaches were attracted to that. And they probably crawled up her thigh into her vagina and ate her. I'm just – I don't know. because. But show me that. <laughs> well, I, I know, Roger. That's why we want the sequel. We want to see that sequence. But that's assuming that's a, I'm assuming that's what happened. Jenny was eaten by the cockroaches in more ways than one. Uh, back at the lab, the, the eggs that were sprayed with this retinone stuff hatch. So Dr. Hubbard realizes that they are immune to the retinone. And she could not be more pleased. She is, has a big old smile on her face when she's like, oh, they're immune. We do then see that Beth, the sheriff, and... and Somebody, was it Homer or is it Cy? I can't tell. Go back to retrieve this body that was found. I, th- I guess it's the body of this Roger Gordon. It's Cy because what think what is happened to the pickup truck after this? Well, I don't, okay, it's, it is. I was wondering where the fuck this guy came from. All of a sudden, I was. Ex- I don't know. Uh, Beth says she needs to go back to her dad's house immediately to find out what is going on. She's going to confront him. We do get this moment where back at the lab, Doctor Hubbard is having this like speech where she is super pleased with herself. And she's like, this cockroach's DNA has proven to be a remarkable capacity for adaptation. And then she smiles and she's like, I did it. So I guess she's the one that created these cockroaches for this company. Well, and I guess she's aware of this mutation that she's been attempting to like create. Like she's been striving for this, I guess. Like what? Making cockroaches that can take on like mutated forms and devour people like is that your end game here like i get i they eventually say that she's trying to create cockroaches that'll eat other cockroaches because they all become immune to to all forms of poisons like eventually they become immune to it so you know she's trying to create this new evolution where they eat themselves but instead she just creates cockroaches that take on the forms of what they're eating and start eating anything. So I don't think that's a win on her behalf. She sure seems fucking happy as a clam about it. She's bragging about it to everybody. I mean, that's the thing with a character like that. Like if you have a God complex, it's all, you always want to give them one that's wrong because if they, (laughs) if they were right, then everybody should have self-esteem that would make them be like, yep, I'm going to make the world a better place by making killer cockroaches. It's such an amazing thing on the God complex and to give it to a a, a female character. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it it is a cool choice that it's a female that is so enamored with cockroaches because generally you would think they would not be. But this doctor could not be. Yeah, she's she's elated that she has developed these cockroaches and that they are they are doing what she has basically triggered them to do. Okay, so on the phone, Hauser and the mayor are coming up with this plan about how they're going to get rid of the cockroaches and how they're going to evacuate the island. Hauser says they are going to spray the entire island tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. But in the meantime, the line is like cracking because the cockroaches are like crawling on the phone lines outside. So you're having a hard time hearing. They're having a hard time hearing what each other says. Uh, mayor tells him, you know, I'm going to try to evacuate the island, but if I can't get everyone off by the island at five, 
I will turn the lighthouse beam on and that will be a signal for you not to spray the island. Because remember, the dose of this retinone that they're going to need to use to spray the island is deadly to humans. So it will kill everybody on the island. Um, so Hauser repeats back to him, okay, it's if the lighthouse beam is on at 5 a.m., we will not spray. And so this becomes, as we conclude the film, this becomes like the big point of what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, after Sai has helped the sheriff randomly retrieve this body, he's in his pickup truck and he's driving and he's immediately like, he's just driving down the road when this cockroach like crawls into the, his truck and like goes into his ear and he's attacked by cockroaches and his car literally just drives off a bridge and explodes. I'm convinced they had like B footage of a car explosion that they just wanted to use in this film. Uh, that they shot maybe for another movie or not because what else, what other purpose of this is this serve? It's just a car. It's just to show a car explosion. I'm convinced he screams and the car veers and it just goes over the edge of the cliff and blows up. And that is it. Like it is so out of nowhere. It's never addressed again. Nobody. It's not like people come across the wreckage of the, the, the burn truck. Like it is just an uh, out of the blue truck explosion. And we're on to the next scene. I love it. It's so ridiculous because it could have just as easily been uh, the dead cat was really Toonses driving the car. <laughs> and if you guys are old enough to remember that SNL bit, then welcome to this weirdo ass movie. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I, I'm a, I was a little. Okay. Sorry. I was team Lily in the entire movie up until maybe this next scene, because I don't know. We cut to the diner and the diner Roger and Zach is in is literally infested with cockroaches. Yet it still seems to be operating. Is, yes. it, is it running at this? Right. Is she allowed to okay. serve food? In here? I don't know. But OK, it, it, there is kind of little comic moments, right? When she's like turning the blender on when they're crawling in the blender and she's like puts she turns the microwave. It reminds me of like the gremlin scene when the mom is like putting the gremlins in the microwave. Oh, Exactamundo. Yeah, that's what I thought of. And it's funny. It's kind of funny. She's throwing coffee on them and stuff. But I'm thinking, get the fuck out of there. Like, they, there's no way you're going to kill all of these. They're every, they're crawling up the walls. They're style. And she's like, just trying to, and she's doing little, she's saying little one liners. She's like, oh, have a refill of coffee, sir. She's, the, I don't know. I don't buy that this character would just stay in this. Burn <laughs> it down. Burn it down. Like, it is in, literally infested. The walls are breaking open to reveal cockroaches. Like, and then. Uh, you think with the one-liners, like you hear these moments, you're like, oh, this gal, she's going to come out swinging. Like there is no way that Lillian is not going to like get the best of these cockroaches. She's so confident in the moment, cracking little jokes here and there. What happens to her? <laughs> it's, it's just so unfair to this poor woman. Like, come on. I, okay, we're going to get there. Cause I have questions. I have questions about what precisely happened to Lillian and, I don't know that any of them, are, any answer that you guys give me is going to be satisfactory, but we we will discuss. the 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 mayor calls Doctor Hubbard to tell her that they need to be off the island by five a.m. because they're going to spray the island. She says it's not going to work; they're immune. He's like, "Oh, god damn it!" Well, then go turn the lighthouse beam on. Then, okay. In the meantime, Homer. Has, fran has made it home and he's frantically like running around his house, kind of trying to gather chemicals and stuff and, and pesticides to fight these cockroaches when he spills a whole bottle of pesticide on the floor and somehow ends up blowing his goddamn house up. 
the, the people in this film are inept. Like, the, the, the trucks driving off bridges, houses blowing up willy-nilly. Like, people are just, I mean, the people, they deserve to die. I'm sorry. Dropping pancakes all over themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping, r- drip, <laughs> smothering yourself in maple syrup. Like, god damn it. People here cannot even get their basic shit together. Oh, I, I don't know. It's everything is happening so fast in this film and you're trying to like you're trying to make sense of everything that's going on. Um, Beth gets back to her home and she's asking her dad what the hell is going on on the island. And he tells her, you go pack. We, we got to go in the meantime. OK, the sheriff has arrived at the station to find Millie. And we have not seen Millie this entire film, but. We do see the reveal that Millie has been mauled to death by the cockroaches at her desk. It makes me think of that broad in in the Powerpuff Girls, the redhead, who's always covered by her own hair. I can't fucking remember her name. Um, you know, the, the sexy, the breathy redhead. I'm not a Powerpuff Girls fan. So well, like, well, you got to catch up because this woman, she, she, you never see her face. It is always comedically played. Um, but the, the fact that it's, it's Miss Bellum, it, that's who it is. It's Miss Sarah Bellum. You only ever see her hair. You never see her face. Millie, it is almost a comedic approach. The fact that when they find her body, she's positioned so her head's hanging off the edge of the table. You don't see her face. You just see her delicate arm all eaten up. Um, and I thought it was kind of like funny that they chose to never show this poor woman's face. But like for one of the standout characters in the movie, I wish I got to see her fucking face. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they did it for sort of a comic relief element of the film, obviously. And it is weird that she ends up dead. Like the cockroaches made it to the sheriff station and she wasn't able to get away quick enough. I don't very, very odd, but that's not even the oddest part because from the sheriff station, he goes to the Lillian's diner to, to look for Lillian and he walks in the diner and immediately he sees it's in disarray and he finds Lillian's body in the freezer. And she's dead. She's not eaten by the cockroaches, mind you. There's no, there's not one cockroach on her. So, are you trying to? What happened to her? Are they trying to insinuate that she got, went into the freezer and got locked in? Because it doesn't feel like there was that much time for her to be in there to actually freeze to death. What the fuck happened to her? Oh, I think she definitely froze to death. Not that no, because that's there wasn't enough time. How much time passed since she went into the freezer? Here's the weird thing with this movie is if, if if you go back and watch this movie, there's so much of it that happens just during the day. Like there are so few night scenes in this movie, like at all. And like, that's what fucks with the time flow. Cause it's like, it almost feels like all of this takes place over one long day. Right. But it, it just, there's no way that could be the case. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like, it seemed like she that's it was it seemed like it's been the same evening, right? She was just outside sweeping. She saw um she saw the sheriff and Beth drive by, and that wasn't that long ago. So I'm assuming there hasn't been a lot of time that's passed because that was just a couple scenes before. So there's no way that she was in the freezer that long to freeze to death. I'm sorry. There is no cockroaches. It just doesn't make any sense what happened to this woman. Again, it's my theory that this character was supposed to be a bigger character and they just ran out of time with her. So they're like, just kill her in the fucking freezer. I'm convinced there's some script rewrites that happen with this character. There's no way that they would write a character this thin and then finish her off in such a lame manner. Like it really feels, it kind of feels jarring to me. 
Um, at least where the film goes from here, post Lillian's death, it does kind of go into an upswing for me. Like, there's a lot of fun action coming up here, but this moment genuinely upset me. Like, when I saw that this was her conclusion, I stopped the movie and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this broad, like, she just fought a whole army of cockroaches. I think she won because there's no cockroaches there now. I mean, I think she literally killed all of them. I don't know. Then she just went <laughs> went to the freezer to die. Like, and then like, she just went in there and died. Like, come on, man. I don't know. I feel so bad for this poor See, woman. See, I think that with the the love triangle that they try to build between the sheriff and and Lillian and Beth, that it could have lent itself to an intriguing scenario where. Uh, Lillian has to mercy kill the sheriff. Uh, and then uh, Beth saves Lillian. And then they have the whole adventure that takes it all the way to the end. But the two of them, like you give them the same romantic storyline, all of it. <laughs> okay. I, 1987, Zach, I don't know if they're going that far. I would love to have seen a mercy killing of, of the sheriff. Like kill him off. He's a piece of shit. Let those two broads. I don't even. I don't need them to be lovers, but give me like a Thelma and Louise moment with these two, where they know they're going to die on the island because those those fucking helicopters are coming either way. They're poisoning it, and they've got to take out the fucking cockroach. So they fill their car with bombs. They light it. They look at each other. They nod and they they drive they they, they drive the car into the building, and it ends with like a bomb going off, like an explosion. And those two broads ascend into heaven together. Like, give me that ending any day of the week because <laughs> the way it goes for Lillian right now, unsatisfying. <laughs> Roger, this is where, as a producer, I would come in and, like we do on meat and say, okay, let's make it gare. <laughs> make it gare. Well, Homer also randomly just pops into the freezer to say that the roaches killed uh, Jake and blew up his house. I'm like, no, dude, you blew up your house, but he's trying to blame it on the roaches. I guess it's easier that way. The mayor gets a radio call from the doctor telling him that there's a malfunction in the lighthouse beam and she can't get it turned on. But he's ignoring the call because he's with Beth now and he's telling Beth that he loved her mother and that it was a mistake. You know, teaming up with iTech was a mistake because it was supposed to help the island, not hurt it. So it's like kind of their last tender moment together. Uh, the sheriff goes into the lab and barges in and tells the doctor that he wishes she were a man and he pulls a gun on. If you her. were a man, I would beat you. Is that what you would say? Like, I mean, I would still beat yeah. this woman after considering what she's done to those cockroaches. Yeah, well, he's he's furious. He's like, "What are these cockroaches and why are they killing people?" And she's like, "Well, you don't need to pull a gun on me." And between her and the mayor, we find out basically that yeah, she developed this roach that's supposed to eat other roaches, and so the the species died out. They're supposed to. They want to get rid of these pests on the island, um, but they're becoming intelligent and they're, they're, they're the way they're, they're behaving. Homer comes up with the hypothesis that there could be a queen, meaning that there's a nest somewhere. And, and Beth's first thought of the nest is going to be in the cave because that's where she saw those testicles hanging from the ceiling. So the mayor uh, basically says that he, um, <laughs> that he let them. <laughs> they do i'm sorry they do, they do. Look like they testicles look. i'm sorry like just the way <laughs> just so nonchalantly says that's where she saw those testicles hanging from this i mean fact of the matter go on well, now let me interrupt you i'm sorry we're two and a half hours in I'm keep trying. going try to i'm trying to bring it home <laughs> 
sir. So the mayor's like they he let them he let them experiment on the island because they were investing in the island. And Beth is like, "You did to Northport what you did to my mother. You destroyed them both." And she gets up and, and storms out, and we see the the, the lighthouse light has flickering on and off. And basically, this whole scene is the mayor and Beth being attacked by roaches. They're coming from all angles. They're, they're coming from the floorboards. They're coming in the windows. They're coming under. I mean, they're coming everywhere. The mayor's trying to radio um, the doctor for the sheriff. She tells him well, the sheriff is busy getting the lighthouse beam on. And you guys just use a fire extinguisher. CO2 will kill the kill the roaches or freeze the roaches. Doesn't this moment also make the doctor seem like she's like, I'm purposely not yes. going to tell the sheriff. I'm going to I'm yes. going to fuck you all over. She, like, she seems real maniacal here. But they do get a, they do get fire extinguishers and they're spraying these roaches all over the place. And as they're running out of the house. <sighs> OK, the mayor makes a decision. I, I don't know how I feel about this based on his character traits up until this point, but he decides that he is going to sacrifice himself when really him and Beth were, they were okay. They were being attacked. They, they were fine. They were fine. That's my whole point. They're, it's not like, they, it's not like they were being overtaken. Like, yes, the roaches were in the house, but they were fine. They could easily could have run out. Instead, he decides to go into the bathroom that where all the roaches are and, and lock himself in. So that they can devour him. I, I did not understand this motivation. You talk about like writing and writing good characters and having characters have motivations and whatnot. This did not make any sense to me. I guess the only thing I could piece together was like he was trying to like sacrifice himself to make up for what he feels he did to to Beth with her mother and then what he brought onto the island. But still. I don't know. It, it didn't sit well with me, but it does lead to what is probably the best reveal in the film. Well, I mean, the moment here, what I've gathered from this moment is that the mayor is trying to close the door because, you know, that piece of cloth is carting the door and he's, he can't close it. And there's so many cockroaches, I'm guessing they're opening the door. I guess they can operate the door to begin with. So he, because he can't close the door, he chooses to throw himself into the bathroom to, to distract the cockroaches but like from what like there's an exit like literally you she just runs upstairs uh, i mean why are they staying in the house to begin with aren't they isn't the goal to flee from the house like can't they just run out together yes i get it there's cockroaches everywhere step on them i don't know i mean these things are it's not like they're coming in a form of a tidal wave i mean like you can you can get through them just fine light a torch i don't know there's plenty of things they can do to fight these things off I get they eat human flesh, but they're not overtaking them to the extent that he has to offer himself up. So for him to do this, it's literally just so they can have this moment that's coming up. And yes, you're right. It's the probably the most memorable moment of the film in general. Um, it still doesn't make any fucking sense at all what happens coming up with the mayor. But it's it's a fun cuckoo banana sequence. The, so is the scene that follows because the sheriff and Homer are trying to get the lighthouse lit when they hear... Hubbard screaming so they rush in and they find that this cat the cat that was used as bait earlier in the film has now become a mutant and this thing is gross it's like just a skin cat it's like hissing and but it has these uh claws like coming out of its mouth these sharp like I don't know what you call them um almost like claws but they're coming out of the mouth you see them and like cockroaches have them insects have them and it's like going berserk and the doctor of course is again enamored by it she is just 
oh, she's think it's she thinks it's beautiful, and the the, doc, uh, the sheriff wants to shoot it. She's like, don't kill it yet. And suddenly it just like leaps forward and it jumps on the sheriff and like grabs him by the throat. And it's like tusks are bedding into his throat and he's screaming for Hubbard to, to get it off of him. And she grabs a fire extinguisher. And there's this moment where she does pause for a long while. And you think that she's going to let this thing kill the, the sheriff, but then she does, she does spray it and it gets off of the sheriff and it like runs around the, the room and it's like going berserk until Homer is able to knock a shelf over on it and smashes it. I was expecting her to lose her shit and be like, my creation! But she's actually like fine with it. But like, here's, there's this plot element here that comes into play where we learn that like, whatever the roaches eat then genetically like melds with them so that their next offspring takes on the form of like what it was they've consumed. Uh, this makes no fucking sense at all. The cat, it is like half cat carcass, half cockroach. And then like, I mean, and then like, if this is the explanation, okay, so you're telling me this thing is what spawned from this fucking egg sack that was down there a moment ago, pulsing, you know, that egg sack that started to bust open. So now, so ooey so very ooey gooey, but then what the cat, what happened to the cat is completely different from what's about to happen to the mayor. And, and the, the mayor is definitely not like the result of what, what I'm being told is going on here. Like, it's not like the, the cockroaches eat the mayor and then they reproduce in a, a, a genetic mutation that's a mix between the mayor and the cockroaches, like, is, like, the next spawn. No, they, like, I don't know what they do to the fucking mayor, but it's something completely different from anything we've experienced thus far. I think part of what they denied Hubbard was a laboratory scene. Like, if, if she would have had, like, a, a, a full-on laboratory scene where she's doing more than just looking at him, like she's able to play with it a bit more, it would have gave more gravitas to like, this is how they became what they were. Cause you know, you saw it in alien where they showed like the clones of Sigourney Weaver kind of thing, shit like that. It's one of those things, but this is where if you've stuck with it this long, you've watched this movie for the plot. <laughs> they finally reward you with shit, just hitting the fan and getting weird. Like this is like, the Rob Boutine thing level ridiculousness. This is like the, like another version of the shunting, you know, I definitely think that this, the film pays off quite a bit. I mean, I, I really do um, with, with these final scenes, there is a moment I do like what the sheriff tells the, tells Dr. Hubbard that her face never changes, that she always looks like she's void of any emotion. Um, and at the same time, Homer is able to get the lighthouse beam on. Yay. Back at the house, we do get the scene where basically Beth is in the house alone and she, her mutant father <laughs> comes waddling in real slow. And there's, you can immediately tell there's something wrong with this man. He's like just waddling in and he's all stiff and she runs up and gives him a hug and realizes that he, when she pulls her hands away, that they're covered in blood and he just literally in front of her eyes, he starts to mutate into this creature. Like his shirt comes off and his skin starts to peel off and his, he grows those like tusk things out of his mouth. His eyeballs pop out and it's just, it's very impressive. Like this whole effect is very impressive. It's very gross. It's very gooey. This, this creature that this father becomes looks terrifying, Again, it doesn't make much sense in the context of the film, but it is a great 
great fucking transformation. I mean, it's 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 so good. It just doesn't line up with anything we've been told thus far. No, no, it's 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 very odd because when he comes when he comes out of the bathroom, like when he comes up to bath, he is not like there's no cockroaches on him. He's not chewed up. Uh, he's not bloody. So it's like, okay, how did these? What did these cockroaches do to him? And then he just like transforms into this giant hybrid cockroach creature, and he starts to attack her. And it is a very cool um, shotgun blast to the head that we see. We get a head explosion that kind of reminiscent of the one we see in, in uh, Maniac or uh, the end of the Prowler. It's 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 a, that level of head explosion. It's really great. Just and Richard enters the uh, enters to see this aftermath just as the clock ticks at four thirty nine, and the lighthouse light goes out. So they have literally 21 minutes to to get this lighthouse beam back on. Do you feel that there is a level of camp in the horror and that's why it feels disjointed? Or do you feel that they were like, this story doesn't explain it enough? I think like when camp really works is when it's not intended. And so I think to step back and say, like, is there an element of campiness to this? Absolutely. I mean, from the depiction of that goddamn fucking doctor with those severe shoulder pads to the just overall levels of gooey grotesqueness that we get from this whole design because it's not thoroughly explained. I think there is a level of camp to it because it just pushes it so much further than it needed to. Like, I never, you know, upon my first viewing of this, I would never have anticipated this to be the outcome. Like, I may be seeing the cockroaches become bigger and mutated, I can imagine. But for this man to, I mean, I'm thinking he just swallowed, I think the cockroaches climbed inside of him and took took him over like a goddamn puppet. I don't know. Like, I do not know what happened to this man. I don't know if it's because he was bit, if it's because he was bit. Well, everybody's been bit by a cockroach at this point in the fucking movie, so they're all fucked. I mean, why are there more of these things waddling around the island? Jenny! Jenny's one of these things right now. I bet you anything. Same with the same with the, the portly woman, uh, her aunt with the foot cast. Part two. Part two. Oh, there we go. Just tons sure. of these things. Oh. But for this, like, right. to give me this kind of payoff, I at least need a little more groundwork for it. I mean, not to say it wasn't very enjoyable to watch. I think it's absurd. Like, it is crazy, and it's just so extreme. But like, I do wish that I had a little more understanding of as to like the who, what's, and whys of it. Uh, to make it really pay off. Because, yeah, it looks great. But when you sit down and you, I mean, if I were to tell the story of what just happened to this man, I wouldn't know how to put it into words. Because I literally don't know how he became what he just became before his daughter blew his head off. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you know what? I'll buy it because it looks so it looks so great. It's just a, it, and there is a level of camp to it. I mean, and the fact that she has to shoot her father's head off as he becomes this creature that's trying to. Uh, molest her and, and attack her it's 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 quite a uh just a over-the-top scene so they have to split up so homer and the sheriff drive to the lighthouse and hubbard and beth go to the cave system and as they're driving like the cars are being invaded by cockroaches like the sheriff's car is being invaded so homer's like spraying them with this with uh, an extinguisher hubbard and beth get to the cave system Beth finds this like bomb. I don't know. There's just like this random bomb that's been in this cave. Is that what I'm gathering? Because they didn't build this bomb, right? It's just been in this cave. She found it earlier, didn't she? Was she just wandering around? There's just a bomb there. I guess. But why is there a random? Why is there a random like timed bomb? It was in the Monopoly box with the IOU. <laughs> but she she sets it. She sets it for five minutes, 
And as uh, home, as the guys are driving, the roaches like start to leave the car and they kind of gather centrally on the hood. And this is when Homer definitely is like, yes, there's a queen. We need to find the queen and we need to find the nest. I just gotta say, I don't even buy that Beth would know how to start a bomb. Like this, this cherubic young woman with this blonde helmet hair is gonna know how to detonate a fucking bomb. Like I don't. I mean, is the sheriff even gonna know how to detonate a bomb? I don't think anybody here knows how to actually properly handle bombs. But all of a sudden, in the last fifteen minutes, Beth is a shotgun wielding fool. I mean, she's just going to town. Oh, she seems pretty confident. She sets it right for five minutes. Uh, Hubbard in the meantime has wandered off and found the hanging testicles and, um, she is all giddy about them as we all are about hanging testicles, right? I mean, two out of three here. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. She, she starts to like get a knife out and, and she's going to cut into one when she is confronted by, is this the queen? Oh, this is absolutely the queen. Is this not the queen's act? Is this the queen? Okay. Is this the king queen's act? I think. I love that it's a an amalgamation of all genders, and I and I think it speaks so much to her character that has exuded this almost asexual identity through the entire movie. So, because it's it's one of those weird things. Like, do you think Hubbard wants to be a cockroach or fuck a cockroach? Oh, I think she wants the whole shebang. I definitely think she wants to fuck one of those cockroaches, though. Don't you think, Troy? Oh yeah, I mean, she wanted to fuck. She, at first, she looks like she wants to fuck this thing as it's approaching her. Yeah, I think that's really weird and fun and interesting because it's it's all incumbent of mutations and 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 pain. Yeah, I'm assuming it's the queen. It's this like giant cockroach hybrid monster. It has multiple faces on it. It has the giant like cockroach tusks coming out of it. And she, at first, she's like, oh my God, she's so entranced by it until it like grabs her and, and like <laughs> pulls her arm off just as Beth walks up, she rips her arm off and throws it on the floor. And, you know, it's, it's so insane that these things are just able to rip arms and limbs off willy nilly. Um, but then it, it does something worse. It like digs its tusks into her head and like cuts her head in half. We all knew this broad was going to die. We knew this broad was not making it to the end of the movie. She's too, again, she's too dastardly. She's too maniacal. But what happens to her in the sequence, first of all, just ripping her arm off. And she's just like, oh, like, <laughs> like we've not seen this woman show any emotion or fear up to this point. And then all of a sudden she just realizes that death is imminent and fear just takes over for a second, rips her arm off. And then it fucking chops the top of her skull off in what is like a very like sick, like almost like the take on like a like a like a Native American scalping that you would see in a movie. I mean, like it chops the fucking top chunk of her head off. It is disgusting. It's one of the grossest effects I've ever seen. I love it. I love it. Yeah, the the framing of it, it actually reminded me, and it's just going to be a really weird uh, reference, and I, we referenced it a, a couple episodes back again, too, but I was just thinking, just the way it was framed, like when you see this thing holding, kind of reminded me of a visual out of the movie The Ritual with that giant monster at the end. 
I don't know. I just got that, that image in my mind. Um, but yeah, so the doctor's dead and we see the helicopters are approaching and the lighthouse light still is not on. Richard has come into the cave right at the time that poor Dr. Hubbard is killed and he, and he throws Beth a spear who then proceeds to throw it into the monster so that she can, or the queen so that she can climb out of the cave. It doesn't look like it's going to be good because the lighthouse light is off and the helicopters are really close. Homer's like really frustrated. He's like, I can't believe I can't figure this out. And he like pounds the, the panel. And all of a sudden that does the trick. All you have to do is pound the panel because the lighthouse light comes on and Beth and R- Richard emerge from the cave and they embrace on the beach. And the last shot is a pan down to her shoe and there is a cockroach on her shoe. And that is the end of the nest. I mean, this whole build up to this explosion sequence, there's no way that even if they magic out of that hole, those people did not survive. That explosion is explosion is massive. Like they should have been consumed in the flames of that explosion, but they seem fine. They're not even like lightly singed. There's no soot on them, no shrapnel or anything. So for the fact that they got out unscathed, I don't buy it. Um, but okay. Like, I guess this is the end of the movie. Uh, and then uh, Homer has this moment where he's like, Homer P. Byron, exterminator. And like, that's his moment of glory. So he's basking in the glow of that. But like, uh, I'm sorry. You know, they can tell the helicopters to not come and poison the island, but like, no offense to these people. They worked really hard to survive, but like, I mean, I'm sorry, this island should absolutely be be bombed. I mean, with them on it. Like, they will be missed. They worked hard to survive, but this island is plagued by thousands and thousands of mutant, mutant cockroaches that can do horrible things to people, that can make people turn into monsters. This island needs to be singed to a crisp and everything on it needs to be just sacrificed i'm sorry if there's still people if jenny's still alive out there i'm sorry jenny you will be missed this is where we uh build a theme park around it and this is mesopotamic park i mean people would come you know if it was making things like what the mayor turned into as an attraction i mean it's terrifying but i would pay good money to watch it from from a distance that was the era of cockroaches, right? I mean, they've been, oh, they've been around cockroaches? forever. Oh, I, you're asking the wrong podcast on that. I do not know. I have no idea. But yeah, that's the end of the film. And yeah, it's, I mean, is it satisfactory? I, I don't know, but it's it's sure the hell is entertaining. And that's all I can ask for at the end of the day. Uh, I feel like the film, uh, I'd never seen it before. And like I said, I, I don't think that it's a very... Um, popular film i don't think it's one that's well discussed or are often discussed i should say i never hear it brought up but you know it, it's it, it it's quite entertaining it has its charm it's it's weird enough that it, it it's engaging for the entire film it's yes there's some ridiculous aspects of it but i was never bored uh i was thoroughly entertained throughout the entire thing like i said it, it reminds me so much of the film mutant um i think you know if a great double feature would be mutant and this film. They go very well together. And at the end of the day, I I will say I enjoyed it. I'm surprised I had not seen it sooner and I'm surprised more people don't talk about it. So thank you, Zach, for choosing it. And because I probably would have never watched it otherwise. And it's certainly not one we would have ever covered on the podcast. So I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I would have to say that I also like, am am thankful to have visited this film. I wouldn't say I would necessarily say I, 
loved it, but the aspects of it I very much liked, like the usage of the puppeteering, the gore, how far they pushed the gore. I really liked that, and I liked a lot of the character choices, though not all of them. I do think a few of the choices may be actually made for a lack of likability factor in a few of these characters. But overall, I mean, like, I very much enjoy a, a killer insect film. Um, slugs, bugs, you know, spiders make my ass clench. Any of those things make my stomach just churn. So this was like right, you know, right up my alley. And we've been talking a lot about Slither um, recently, Troy. And there are elements of this that I feel like I could see also uh, bestowing some influence on a movie like like Slither, you know, because I think that, you know, there's definitely just like the character structures that they have, this whole kind of ragtag group of townspeople coming together. Um, I definitely saw elements of that here. So I, I, I really enjoyed it for what it was. And I, I could see myself watching it again. You know, we've definitely had movies before where I've been like, I, I don't think I'll ever see myself sitting down with the title again. And with this one, I'd like to revisit it again a couple of times to kind of maybe get a better understanding of why some of the characters make the choices they do. Maybe find some of these homoerotic tendencies that uh, that Zach is hinting at. I got to I gotta look for them now. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to see them, Zach. I'm going to tell you that much right now. But they, they could very well be in there. You had Jake in his underwear, I mean, dying in the, in the junkyard. I don't want that to be sexual. <laughs> I don't think there's any homosexual man out there that th- is going to think a, an old man in his long johns in a junkyard is sexy. Zach, you are given gay men... You know, people got their things. I'll say this. Everyone's got a kink. If you like them old and you like them in Long John's, this is the movie for you. Uh, As brief as that scene may be. But Zach, yeah, thank you very much for introducing both of us to this title because neither of us had seen it before. Awesome, yeah. And uh, Carbon Nefarious, period. That's when cockroaches are from. I had to look that up. That was driving We we, We bestow a title on you and some knowledge as well here at Dark Knight of the Podcast. Yeah, but that was The Nest. So, Zach, thank you. Thank you so, so much for joining us for this episode. Yes, and Zach, please, like, take us out real quick for the listeners uh, so they can, you know, follow you on social media and get kind of an idea of where they can catch you. You know, run by your social media links. Let them know where they can find you out there. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Zach for Zombies, Z-A-C-H-F-O-R-Z-O-M-B-I-E-S. Uh, reach out. I, I like talking to new people and, and chat movies and I'm always up to something. I've been working on meat with Roger. We're getting ready to go into production. Second phase of that. Um, if you're looking for fun stuff to watch, there's spooky dookie that just came out on Blu-ray from rock bottom video. It's a really fun, uh, Halloween themed sketch comedy thing that recently came out. And then, uh, also I've got two entries in symbolicus, two and volume three so if you're in extreme cinema those are out there as well absolutely we'll make sure to share some of those links on our pages as well so our listeners can get their hands all over you but till then listeners thank you for sticking with us through this i mean honestly probably our longest episode to date which i can't believe we even got (laughs) close to three hours with this one but troy you know just when i least expect it (laughs) Yeah, I was. I'm surprised, but I, I do want to shout out what our next episode is going to be, just to get the gays excited and get them prepared, and then we're going to end the episode because it has been long. Uh, so next week it may be our. I, th- I think it may be our last episode together. No, no, there should be one more. Um, but it is going to be one of our last episodes together before Roger takes his little 
break for meat pro- meat production. We all like some meat production. But we are covering next week, guys. We are covering a a very recent film, Gay. Gay is all get out. Made by a great group of guys who just debuted their their second feature film at the Salem Horror Film Festival. Uh, and we feel as if we're going into June, this is the perfect film to talk about. So we are covering next week the campy, gay, gay, what do you want to say, Roger? Gay glory hole goodness that is Death Drop Gorgeous. Guys, if you have not seen this film, it's on Shudder. Check it out. Uh, we are going to have a blast discussing it's so fun. it is fun and we're i'm so glad we're covering it finally we're gonna have a blast discussing it so guys tune in for that next week it's been a long time coming and i mean what better way to kick off pride month because june is just like you know just coming up around the corner than by one watching one of the gayest fucking horror movies i've ever seen in my life i can't wait absolutely and with that guys good night don't forget to contribute to the meet indiegogo we love you good night